You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Happy New Year, Will. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year, listeners, and welcome to the end of another year of the Common Descent podcast. Which means? It's time for an end of the year Q&A. Welcome back, everyone. It's been quite a year, but there is plenty to celebrate from the year 2020, including the fact that our podcast is has done better than ever. Yeah, it's been an amazing year, productive and so much support. Lots of great episodes, lots of great other stuff, lots of new listeners, lots of great interactions with listeners. And as has become our tradition, we will celebrate the end of this year by answering a whole lot of questions from people who sent them in. I'm so excited. Between mid-November and mid-December, we had a Google form up where people could send in questions for us to answer in this Q&A sort of mailbag episode where the goal is to answer is lots of questions from lots of people, relatively rapid fire, and get through. Now, in the past, (laughs) our episodes for the Q&A have been rather long. Yep. Last year's episode, I think, was three and a half hours long. About. This year, we received about twice as many submissions as last year. Yeah. Which means... We're not going to get to all the questions this year. We're not aiming for a seven-hour Q&A. Unfo- as much as we know that we have listeners who would happily listen to us answer questions for seven to eight hours, that's a bit much for us. We are but human. <laughs> the, are, these vessels are mortal. We need to finish it this year. So this year's format's going to be a little bit different. Predominant change is that we're setting ourselves a time limit. Yes. Uh, we have chosen an aimed end time for our Q&A which after editing we're, should end up with an episode about the same length as last year's episode. Yeah, give or take. Which means that there will be some questions we don't get to, for which we are sorry. We do genuinely apologize. Rest assured, we've read every question. All your comments, all your questions, thank you to everybody so much for your engagement, for your comments, for your encouragement. Uh, some of you left very funny or clever or enthusiastic comments, and we really appreciate it. As with previous Q&As, we have created a randomized shuffle yep. of our questions so that we don't fully know the order we're going to get them in. Nope. In the interest of keeping things moving smoothly, uh, longer questions we've trimmed down a bit, some duplicate or similar questions we've combined. Yep. And one particular category of question we're going to deal with right now. Several people sent in questions that were effectively episode topic requests. Yep. Could you do this topic? Have you considered an episode about this topic? We're going to answer all of those right now at the same time. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And they're on the list. And we have put them on the list. We are always open for episode topic requests. We're not going to go through each of them individually here on the Q&A, but rest assured, it is on the request list that we will peruse for upcoming episodes. Thank everybody, as always, for giving us our topic suggestions. Yeah. And so, without further ado... Let's get into this marathon of an episode. Like last previous years, we're going to take turns reading out these questions. Will, would you like to start us off on our 2020 end of the year Q&A? I absolutely would. Our first question is from one who say that there are some who call them Rob, 
Hello, Rob. Hi, Rob. I think this is our yes. artist friend, Rob. I believe so. Who did our, our logo for the, the, the new Common Descent logo. Yeah. Who asks, would it have been possible for an Ashdarkid pterosaur to have supported the weight of an average adult human while maintaining flight? So Ashdarkid pterosaurs include, but are not limited to, the absolute largest pterosaurs of all time. The plain-sized ones. Like Quetzalcoatlus and such. Ah, uh, I'm no biophysicist. But probably not. Everything I've ever heard, like, from people who do work with that have said no. And every time I've ever seen a picture of someone riding a pterosaur and a comment on it, it's been no. Well, because it takes a lot of energy to move even their own body around. It's why we don't see a lot of birds that lift particularly heavy weights. And even the ones who do are not, uh, birds aren't huge. Yeah. And they're not, like, flying long distances with their heavy weights. I wouldn't surprise me if you could, like, grab on to a giant pterosaur's foot yeah. high in the air and not die on the way down. Yes. Like, it might be able to slow or glide. Uh, you might do the, 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 the umbrella... The Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins thing a little bit. Yeah. But I don't think that they could actively fly with an extra 150 to 200 pounds of person. Yeah, I also don't know if they could take it on their back. Yeah, I don't know if their back would, would be built for that. Yeah. A lot of animals today, their backs aren't... Well, isn't, like, riding elephants bad for their backs because they're not built I think for I, that? I feel like I've heard that. So, yeah, it's like, I don't know that it would work. But it's a fantastic question. It sure was cool in Dinotopia. Our next uh, question is actually two questions we're going to answer back to back. Jesse asked, What have you done to feel a semi-sense of normalcy during the pandemic? And Joe asked, similarly... How have you guys coped this year with the pandemic and everything else? Lots of Zoom sessions. I've uh, been keeping up with lots of friends, lots of friend dates. Yeah. You know, scheduling times to watch stuff and hang out and do something specific with friends that are a distance away. And same thing with my family, you know, Zooming together just to catch up and talk about nothing. Yeah, I've had to be particularly diligent at making sure I'm staying in touch with people, Mm -hmm. because given the chance, I will stay in my room and not talk to anybody for a week. Yeah. Like, I, I, and then not notice that I did it. Yeah. I will, I will shut in. Uh, It is my natural state a little too much. (laughs) So I have to make it a point to be like, oh no, let's message my friends now and then to make, so that they know I'm still alive. Yeah. But otherwise, spending tons of time inside and not going out much is not too different. From what we were doing before. Yeah. And for me, working from home came easily and I've done it before. Yeah. So it, uh, and the podcast has proceeded just as normal. Yeah. Because we live in the same place now. Yeah. So it's mostly been social stuff with friends that has taken some extra effort to make sure. Yeah. And applying moderation to uh, doom scrolling on social media. That's, that's been the biggest thing, really. Took a while to (laughs) get accustomed to just not. Yeah, spending an hour scrolling through angry people on Twitter. Yeah, that's really been one of the biggest. Our next question is also a group from MJ, Aaron, and Rita, who all asked, looking back at the news stories of 2020, what has been your favorite story or the most influential or exciting discovery? Ooh, I feel like this has become a traditional question on the end of the year Q&A at this point. And it's a good question. I was looking back over the news we've covered and there has been so, there's been some cool dinosaur news this year. Mm-hmm. Of course, there was cool, there was fun Spinosaurus stuff. Yep, as always. Uh, I remember the Borealopelta gut contents 
study was really cool. Mm-hmm. An exceptionally good look at dinosaur gut contents. Yeah. Uh, that Neanderthal Y chromosome study comes to mind. Right. Of examining that intense side effect of interbreeding with with our own species mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way we haven't uh, been able to look into before. Yeah, all good stuff. There's been a lot of cool... There's been a lot of cool news. The soft-shelled egg stuff. Oh, yeah. That the, the was probably... Dinosaur, and maybe marine reptile, possibly. Yeah. That, egg stuff. Th- that was probably one of the most exciting to me, just because I had never even considered soft-shelled eggs being a possibility for dinosaurs. There was the uh, Adolotherium, which is the first complete Gondwanatherian mammal. Yeah. Which came out this year. Uh, also, I was looking through our news and I saw that alligator fall study. Yeah. Which was really cool. Yeah. Was, I had almost forgotten about that, that one. That was a good one. That was cool stuff. Next up, this is another uh, a grouped set of questions because a surprising number of people asked these uh, very similar questions. Oh, these are good. Laura asks, do you each have a favorite species of snake or croc? Anna and Jonathan asked, David, what's your favorite croc? And Will, what's your favorite snake, living or extinct? And Sam asked, David, what's your favorite thing about crocs? And Will, what's your favorite thing about snakes? Well played, everyone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> listeners, we see what you're doing. So f- first, then, this is the favorite for each of us, snake and croc. Right. My favorite croc, I always end up defaulting to the estuarian, saltwater, Australian crocodile. It's an impressive croc. It's just so big, and it's antisocial, which makes it very mean and scary, <laughs> which is awesome. And it goes in the ocean. Yeah. I, as far as crocs go, I'd probably choose the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, saltwater croc is a, is a real cool choice. Also, there's a special place in my heart for American alligators. Because oh, yeah. they're here. Yes. It's the, it's the only croc I've seen in the wild. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Which is a pretty cool uh, claim to have. Yeah. Very good point. Cool stuff. So favorite snakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, fossil-wise, Titanoboa is pretty... It's hard to beat. Pretty awesome. Uh, I like Sanaja, the one that was found mm-hmm. in the sauropod nest. Yep. Which is pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. As for living snakes, here in North America, I've always been very partial to bull snakes and green snakes. Yeah. I like those quite a bit. I've always had a soft spot for king snakes. Oh, yeah. Because they eat other snakes. And not only is being a snake specialist a weird thing. But to be a snake that's a sp- snake specialist is extra weird. Yeah. And so they, they, they always just felt like the the tougher, <laughs> a bit more awesome. I also, I, it, I don't think I have a favorite snake. Yeah. Because I can't not mention Chrysopelea, which are the flying snakes. Yep. Also cool. But as far as extinct snakes, Zelantophis. Yes. There of you go. course. <laughs> My snake. <laughs> Absolute favorite snake. All right, what's your favorite thing about crocs? Ooh, you know, it's funny because as much as we rag on each other about snakes and crocs, I think crocs are super awesome. Oh, and snakes are fantastic. I, I, what I love about crocs probably most is that they are just, they're huge, they're powerful, they are the modern reptilian monster animals. Yep. Nothing messes with crocs. When I was a kid, uh, I used to think, if I was going to be an animal, what would I be? And crocodile was often my answer. Yeah. Because you do whatever you want. (laughs) If you want something to not exist anymore, you bite it and it's gone. (laughs) Yeah. If something has a problem with you, it has to deal with that on its own because you're a crocodile. They're just such big, 
impressive tanky animals. Oh, absolutely. What do you like about snakes? For me with snakes, because I always thought snakes were awesome. And I like that they have all these weird abilities. But really, when it boils down, their mobility is just... I I love how... I say creative is the, the term that comes to mind. But how versatile they've had to have been to do all the things they do with effectively the same body across the whole group. Yeah, one body shape for digging, swimming, gliding racing, yep. et cetera. The, the time it really stood out to me was the first time I saw a big uh, a constrictor, and I don't remember what it, whether it was python or boa, but it was climbing a skinny trunked tree, like a palm type yep. style tree, and was basically forming its body into hands around it as it z- accordioned up yeah. and then started wrapping up and moved the body up to that coil and then moved up to make another. And it's like... Yeah. I That's a, like an engineering problem solving, and yeah. I love it. I saw a rat snake do that in person once. That's down so in South Carolina. Cool. Yeah, just accordion up a tree. And that's like that. That feels like when uh, writers for stuff get really creative with a character's superpowers and get them to do cool stuff. But snakes just have to do that to get from A to B. Yeah, and that's awesome. They're so cool. All such cool reptiles. Our next question is from Saul, who asks. If another large civilization comes after ours, will they be able to reconstruct the history of life as well as we have, or will they be at a disadvantage because we have already dug up so many important fossils? Interesting question. I like this a lot. Uh, I guess it depends on how well our own museum records and research studies have preserved. That's I, That would be my <laughs> biggest... Because if you can find what we've done, then... But as, as to the question of, uh, have we dug up so much that a future group would basically miss out on all that data. Yeah. Honestly, I don't think so. Probably. I mean, there probably would be. But they might not find the same stuff. Yeah. Like they're not going to find Sue. Mm -hmm. But there are so many fossils out there and the surface of the earth keeps changing as uh, continents shift and, and weathering and erosion expose new surfaces. I don't like, we are digging up new fossils nowadays at a greater rate than ever before. Yes. Because we're getting better and better at it and there's no dearth of fossils. We're not running out of fossils. So I don't, I don't, I, I'd be surprised if there was like a future where they would go, well, all the fossils are gone. Exactly. I think there's so many that they'd be fine. We, we have, well, it's, uh, I think a great example is the great fossil site where we've hit 1% in 20 years. Yeah. Of just sitting there and digging nowhere else. Yeah. Like, our team's not been, you know, taking summers off to just leave. And so, even if we all died out now, they'd still have most of the great fossil site. Right. <laughs> so, I think it'd be all right. Yeah. It's a cool question. Awesome question. Here's another pair of similar questions. Larissa asks, how do we guess how many animals of a species lived at any given point in time? How does it work for organisms that don't fossilize well? And Joel asks, is there an estimate of how complete our picture of past ecosystems is? Is there a way, a way to estimate how many prehistoric species we may not know about? Very good question. It is. This is definitely an obstacle that paleontologists have to try to overcome. And it is not always equally difficult or easy to approach depending on the site and the organism you're dealing with. Yeah, there are some, I've seen some studies that have tried to get it can we estimate how rich this ecosystem was? Mm-hmm. How widespread might this ancient species have been? 
But I think the short answer, in in the spirit of the Q and A, yeah. the short answer is we don't actually have a consistent good way to do that. No, because I I have heard of people trying to roughly estimate and calculate for how much we might be missing. Mm-hmm. And to fill in the missing data with that, but right. usually based on modern yes. biodiversity. Like so if we assume modern is similar to what we find in the past, there have been estimate estimation attempts, but not particularly reliably. Yeah, and I don't think that it it's going to work differently for each different fossil site yep. and different organisms. And like Larissa points out, yeah, if it, if you're asking about earthworms, we have very little data to go on. Yeah, so it's hard to know. Yes. Next question is Sam, who asks, have either of you played Spore? It is a special place in my heart, but it isn't a great game, and it has a serious great chain of being theme. Yeah, I agree with the great chain of being. So Spore, I've played Spore. Yep. I know you've played Spore. A ton. I haven't played a lot. I've I've dabbled a little bit in Spore. I never owned Spore. I've made a lot of things in Spore. Uh, I thought it was fun. Yeah. That's pretty fun. I I got excited about the you can evolve a, a your own lineage kind of thing, and then when I got in there and I discovered that the way you evolve it is by actively like slapping mm-hmm. wings and extra limbs on it, I lost interest yeah. a little bit. I I have played through it many a time, and just when I play through it, treat it very much as just a game, uh, and I actually have more fun during the civilization part of Spore. Uh, when yeah. I'm basically playing Command and Conquer. I don't think I played enough to get to that part. Yeah, then you're just <laughs> wielding armies, and I have more fun with that than running around as the animal. But what I would do it for is animal design. I would design all sorts yeah. of cool animals that I could finally make 3D. It's that speculative evolution. Yep. So tons of fun, but yes, it is not a good evolution <laughs> example. Steven says, Crabs! Huh? What is your favorite animal that isn't a crab, but is called a crab? Hermit crabs. Uh, I think king crabs are real cool. Oh, yes, they are. They're sort of like big spiky spiders. Absolutely. I have a soft spot for hermit crabs because we would show them to people at the aquarium. And they're adorable. Yeah, they're pretty cool. And they just try to walk around in your hand and I love them. Yeah, both of those, uh, dear listeners, not crabs. Not crabs. Not true crabs. We'll explain more, I'm sure, someday. There there is a request for crab episodes, (laughs) so eventually. We have another grouped pair of questions. Uh, Allison asks, what's your favorite piece of science fiction, book, movie, etc.? And Arthropods Are Better asks, do you know of any paleo-related fiction you'd recommend? Books, games, etc. Ooh, I, my answer to both of those is probably the same. Yeah. yeah. Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is pretty good. I mean, that's formative science fiction. Uh, I've read, a, I, I, as a kid, I read a lot of Crichton stuff, and I liked Jurassic Park. I also really liked Sphere. Yeah. Yeah, I've not. I've, that's one I I still need to read. Uh, I think I've only read Jurassic Park and Lost World. For the first question, though, favorite piece of science fiction is going to be Star Wars or Aliens for me. Yeah, like that makes sense. As a franchise, I I am more into those two. But for the second one, yeah, the yeah. the book Jurassic Park is pretty. I actually, I, it's been a long time, but I remember liking the second yes, book better than so. the first book. As far as other paleo related fiction. That we might recommend. I mean, I think Primeval. Primeval. The TV show. It's not a great show, I don't think. No. But the concept is really cool. Yeah. And some of the characters are a lot of fun. Yeah. Definitely uh, worth a watch. I don't think I've ever finished it. I think I watched I, the first, like, I did, and it, several it seasons. It finishes in a, uh, uh, at least in an interesting way. But I like Primeval. Yeah. 
I know I've mentioned it a dozen times. Dinotopia was probably my first. Oh yeah, same. That was my probably first intro into uh, other than little kids books, paleo fiction, and I love it. Yeah, that's good stuff too. Good question. Brian asks, do you have personal favorite out of left field slash unlikely theories? Stuff like semi-aquatic ankylosaurs or complex, unpreserved soft tissue appendages like trunks or bellows. Soft tissue stuff, it does always does really interest me. I, I don't know that there's one specific like official suggestion that I'm more excited for, but when I see paleo art where someone's like, I wanted to see what a dinosaur looked like if it was flabby or yeah. with a, a turkey waddle or I put a trunk on a sauropod. I like that stuff. It's got that speculative evolution bit mm-hmm. to it. And it's a good reminder that, yeah, we have to remember there's more to the to the animal than the bones. Yeah. And this stuff could, we should be remembering that this could be there and we're not seeing it. I think my favorite, the first piece of paleo art that I saw that basically did that, hey, here's, here's something that almost certainly was not true, mm-hmm. but is fun to look at, was I can't remember who this artist was. But it was Therizinosaurus, uh, covered in feathers with the coloration pattern of the classic Wolverine costume. Yeah, yeah. From the X-Men comics. Yeah. And it was awesome. And I was like, wow, it definitely didn't look like that, but how cool does that look? Yes. I love that one. <laughs> I've seen that. Josh asks, what did Dimetrodon's ears look like? Good question. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'd assume, yeah. like, if I had to guess, I'd assume... If anything close to it was around a day, like crockish. Yeah, that's that would be my guess. I don't know that we have any evidence or reason to believe yeah. that it had external ears like we think of with mammals today. Though it probably couldn't close them like crocs can. Ah, so yeah, probably a hole in the side of the head. Yeah, like I, right, yeah, the, the the classic reptile or like a like a lizard amphibian condition. Yeah, but. I don't know, I don't. and I don't know that there's solid evidence to to tell us. Yeah, uh, unless we find a good impression, I don't know how we would guess. Here's another pair of questions. Rob says, I want to dig for fossils. Can a layperson do that? Where would I go? And Dylan asks the very similar question. How would one volunteer for a paleo or archaeological dig? Is there an online, online resource where volunteers can sign up for a dig and get experience? Both good questions, and the answer to both is yes. Yes, uh, you absolutely as a lay person, basically, if you're not at all in the paleo community yet, you absolutely can help out on digs and research projects. Yeah, lots of universities yeah. and museums take volunteers and, and assistance. And so that would be for how to do that or where to go. Uh, if there's a museum near you that deals with fossil material, if there's a university near you that, you know, has anything to do with that. Or if there's a dig site near you, mm-hmm. uh, just get in contact with someone at one of those places and ask them these questions, and they will almost surely have a pretty quick answer for you. Yeah. Because yeah. almost all of those places have some sort of volunteer program in place, or they'll know who to send you to that can get you to volunteer. Yeah. At the, here at the Gray Fossil site, we have a volunteer program where volunteers can get involved. Uh, we have a field program that involves students, mm-hmm. and we've had multiple for-the-public experiences yes. where you can sign up for either during our summer camp or, dur- or for a day to come out and do some fossil work. I don't know of a specific website or anything that has, like, that information. No, I- I'd assume you're going to have to co- make contact with 
a place you're interested to work at or the one nearest you. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, they might be able to give you some more info. Yeah. So as is often the case, uh, ask the ask your nearest paleontologist and then follow that line uh, until you find that, yes, there there will be a place where you can participate. Yes, that is, that is, a, that is not a weird question to ask. Not so at all. Feel free to ask it. So our next question is from Brett, who points out that there are many common misunderstandings about paleontology and asks, do you think the general public and the media will ever be on the same page as paleontologists or even science in general? Good question. Yes. Um, no. No. I do. And, and here's why. Uh, one is because science is always advancing and changing mm-hmm. because the leading edge of scientific discovery is always a bit uncertain. Yep. Because the the latest data is often part of ongoing discussions where we don't actually know what the final answer is yet. Like, look at Spinosaurus mm-hmm. kind of thing. But then also because ideas become catchy. Yep in the public sphere, in the media sphere, in a different pattern than they do in actual scientific discovery and, and part of scientific research. I don't think that it's reasonable to expect the general public or the media to be up to date on all the things. Well, it's also impossible to update the public side of things as quickly as we can update the researcher's view because if you're dealing with textbooks in primary schools, you know, in, in public schools, well, even if those are just two or three years old, something could be discovered in that time that makes a chapter in them completely wrong. And we can't replace every single one of those books as quickly as the science might be updating. So there's always going to be some aspect of there. It's mostly yeah, we might get to a point where it's mostly doing all right, but still has uh, hiccups. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to note that the general public, right, everybody, everybody outside of paleontologists, and especially if we're talking about the media, people making movies and TV and such, are most people, it is not their priority to be up to date yeah. on paleontology and science. And that's not a criticism. It's not my priority to be up to date on the newest cars or That's what exactly the example whatever. I was going to use is uh, the first time <laughs> I learned there were computers in cars, I was like, really? They're like, yeah, for a long time now. <laughs> so I don't think that that's something that people generally strive for. Yeah. So the same way that I don't expect to ever be up to date on like quantum physics or like the most recent understanding of a historical event right what do we now think ancient rome was like i don't know there will always be public misunderstandings there will always be common misconceptions there's too much information in the world for that not to happen yeah that's just the way it is part of being a scientist and science communicator is learning how to live in that reality Mm -hmm. and navigate it as best you can jonathan asks regarding the cartoon snake and croc on your logo are they particular species or generalized depictions? Good question. And they are indeed particular species. They are. Yeah. When, when we talked with Rob about doing that, uh, I think that was one of the, I don't remember if he asked. I think he did. Yeah. I he, think he asked, do you want specific snake and croc or do you just want generic snake and croc? And we both immediately said, no, they should be something specific. Absolutely. And it is an American alligator yeah, for and, the croc. And a bull snake. Mm-hmm. Pituophis for the snake, which are... 
our choice. Well, your choice is easy. Yes. But that's my research animal. <laughs> for me, I picked one of my favorite North American snakes. Yeah. And a big one. Yes. Because it's easier to see so a sit it alongside the gator and it doesn't look super <laughs> tiny and diminutive. <laughs> Just get a little little king snake there uh, curled up on the nose. It's a little a little uh, diadophus, a little <laughs> ringneck snake on the snout. Yes, there we go. <laughs> Buzzmall asks our next question, which is, are there any new technologies on the horizon in paleontology that you guys are excited for? Hmm. On the horizon? There's a lot of new technologies now yes. that are in the process of getting better and better. So, like, ancient DNA uh, processes of, of sequencing and extracting ancient DNA are getting better. Yeah, have improved immensely in recent years. Uh, we talk a lot about CT scanning technology and, and laser mm-hmm. fluorescence imaging uh, and all sorts of uh, ma- different ways of looking at a fossil. Imaging it. 3D scanning and printing technologies are getting better and better, which are really handy for creating digital and physical models. Yeah which is good for research, but also for public education. Well, and uh, they've been using that for reconstruction at the fossil site at yeah. Gray by 3D printing in the conservate, the, 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 um, the archival material, the archival material that we use to fill in and glue the fossils for large missing pieces. And so that probably be my vote as far as upcoming, but yeah, as I, I with our if... last question, I don't know enough about upcoming technology yep. <laughs> To fully answer it. Yeah, I don't know if there's something like, we're almost there. Holodecks. There we go. That's that's really what we need. Holodecks. Holodecks. Uh, and actually, jetpacks. VR. VR probably would be... Oh, that's true. I think VR is something that is, is an untapped category for... Uh, I mean, we saw it in Jurassic Park. You use it to look for the gaps in the code. Right, and you just you put it together. Yep. Uh, but I've seen VR a little bit starting to be used in like museum exhibits. Yep. That's kind of what I'm. Th- is we could make you could make interactive things in VR that could be amazing for science education. True. Very true. Also, teleporters. Yes. For getting us to the fossil sites. Yes, that would be very yep. exciting. Don't forget your fly tape. Here is another pair of questions. Samantha says. When someone wants to study paleontology, what does their college career look like? Do you go in knowing what kind of paleontology you'd like to focus on, or does something fascinate you partway through? And Tom asks, what do you recommend for an undergraduate in paleontology looking to go for their master's? Oh, both good questions. Uh, Well, for the first one, for Sam's, when going through undergrad, uh, I think you'll get a different answer for each paleontologist you ask. I personally have friends who didn't know that they were going to be a paleontologist until they found out it was a career option partway through. Mm-hmm. And then went, I, you mean I can actually study that and get a job as that? And someone was like, yeah. And they went, well, then I'm switching right now. Yep. I know other people who went in knowing that's, I knew I wanted to go into paleontology when I started undergrad. Same. And for me, I studied biology for two reasons. I was already not very interested in rocks and much more interested in animals when mm-hmm. I started, but also there were no geology courses at my undergrad. Right. So I just focused as much on biology as I could and knew that I was going to be studying the animal sides of things, but I didn't know what I would be studying until I got to Gray Fossil Site or to the ETSU. Yeah, most paleontologists in undergraduate, if you know you're going to be a paleontologist, are coming up through biology or geology. Yes. Because most undergraduate places don't have a specific bi- paleontology focus. No, not really. At the undergraduate level. But they, you can also be an engineer and then 
become a paleontologist later. Well, especially for people who are going into it secondarily or not planning to go into it. There's computer scientists who have end up, ended up as paleontologists because yep. there's lots of examples of people who helped out on a research project where it's like, hey, we need to model this or I need to build a robot that does this. And then this person helps them is interested by it and enjoys it and then continues. And now they're like presenting at SVP regularly. Yeah. I've known people who were mathematicians, Mm -hmm. engineers, archaeologists, uh, who then move over into paleontology. So there's not really a single course. Follow your interests and look for where they overlap with paleontology. And that would, that will be a potential path. As for the second question of what we would recommend, uh, it's good. You're going to have to, look into sciences typically mm-hmm. like that's not to say you could definitely deal with paleontology there are people who work within paleontology in how fossil sites relate to native lands and so like there are social and it, e- economic routes into the paleontology world right, right. but usually you're going to need to be working on those science classes and if you're looking to go for your master's in terms of recommendations for that, uh, find what you want to do and yep. then look for the people who do that stuff. Yeah. Look up some research. Look for the names that are on that research and see where they are. Yeah. You can choose uh, uh, where as you're advancing, you can choose to advance to a new place for the place you want to be. Yep. If you want to do paleontology in Europe or whatever for the kind of thing you want to study, the kind of person you want to work with. Uh, some places offer lots of different experiences. Some places it's a bit more specific. So uh, as as is often our advice, talk to people. Yeah, they will tell them what you want to do, and they'll lead you in that direction. Yeah, they will tell you. When I got here to ETSU, and they said, "All right, what are your interests?" I was like, "Well, definitely reptiles. I like dinosaurs." The first thing they said was, "All right, cool. Well, you're not going to do dinosaurs if you come here. Not here." Uh, and I went, "All right." <laughs> You know, do you have alligators? And they said, yes. I went, cool. Close enough. And so, yeah, just talk to people and they will let you know what they do and don't have. They're not going to invite you there under the pretense that you can study saber tooths and then be like, no, we don't have anyone who knows about that. Right. (laughs) Good questions. And best of luck to one or both of you. Yes. Dorothy asks, why don't most animals photosynthesize? Good question. Mm-hmm. The short answer is they don't have chloroplasts. Nope. Um, so there are a bunch of animals that do photosynthesis type things. Mm-hmm. Some like corals do it through symbionts. Yep. There are, I think there are some insects that have other kinds of sunlight capturing pigments that get a little bit of energy from them, I think. There's that sea slug yep. that steals chloroplasts from, I think, algae. So there are some animals that do things like photosynthesizing. Uh, from what I've read, I think that probably the two big reasons why animals tend not to photosynthesize are, one, because they just don't have the tools for it. Yeah, our cells don't make chloroplast. And two, I've also seen it suggested that animal lifestyles would not be sufficiently powered. Yeah. That... We move a lot. I was about to say, how often do you see trees running around? Right. We have complex organ systems. We have brains. We have the way that our bodies function requires a lot of energy that we might not actually be able to get from sunlight. And that moving a lot interferes with photosynthesis. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you move, you're you're moving, if not your whole body, the cells that are important 
out of the sun. Yeah. Are you moving in and out of shade? Are you, right. you know, when you go to move, do you turn part of your body away from the sun? Yeah. Like, so it, it, it just, it probably just isn't compatible with the animal body shape, bo- body design, body organization, and lifestyle. Yeah. One of the animals you listed that do have a more plant-like lifestyle also live much more like plants. Like yeah, coral is very plant-like. That's their basic. It it takes effort to explain to people why it's not a plant. Right. <laughs> cool question. Sam asks. One hundred and two plus episodes later, is the fire still there? Has the podcast become more of a chore than a passion? I hope not, and I hope you know that we get a lot out of it. Aw. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And I'd say, yes, it is. I'm fired up. It's uh, The fire's still there. There definitely have been moments and periods where it has been more of a chore. Yeah. Where it's we got a lot to get done. Yes. And not a lot of time to do it. Usually, though, that's more due to what else is going on around in our lives. Like when a pandemic happens. Yep. <laughs> and less to do with... I'm just tired of doing this thing. It's it's typically I'm this was one extra thing on my plate right this week that I would have liked one less thing to be on. But sitting around and talking about science with my friend. Yeah. That always fun to do the episodes fun. and always still exciting uh to get responses and comments from the listeners. So Yeah. Th- this end of the year Q&A is one of those great moments where we're reminded how many people are engaged and interested in what we're doing. Yeah, very encouraging. Next question is by Pepper, who asks, what are your favorite sources of paleontology info and news? Good question. Mm-hmm. I off I don't I don't know that I have like a go-to source for paleontology news. Normally it's just the internet. Yep. I follow lots of paleontologists on Facebook and Twitter who will often share news that comes their way. When I was a journalist, I was signed up for a lot of press emails that would be, here's the what's what's new in this journal this month, um, which some of those anyone can sign up for. And then a, a lot of the time I hear the paleo news through just online communities of paleo people that I'm connected with. Yeah, I, I, I'd say if you listen to our news sections you'll notice that there are definitely a few sites that we tend to use more often than others. Yeah. Those are the ones that we find to be pretty reliable and pretty well-written and pretty well done. Yeah. There are some web news sites that are better than others. Some authors, a a journalist who do really good jobs. Uh, But oftentimes, you know, if when I'm looking for news for a new episode, a lot of times I'll do a Google search. Yeah. I I have a, a slew of news sites that I will pop open. And then if, I don't find it on there or find what I'm looking for. I'll yeah, just do a Google search. Yeah. So yeah. Here's another pair of questions. Sarah asks, if you could find out the answer to one burning question in paleontology, what would that question be and why? And Jim very similarly says, what paleontological mystery would you most like to see resolved? Ooh, both interesting. This is always a tough one for me to answer just because there's, there's so many things like there's not i don't have a top of the list thing that's necessarily the go-to as far as like burning question you know to answer for me usually that comes to some sort of behavioral question i I, i'm always wanting to know what things we're doing uh that that's i feel like that's such an important aspect 
of how to understand an animal and, you know, as an animal biased person. And that's something that we so rarely get even glimpses into that if I could get an absolutely, you know, definitely true answer, you know, factual answer to a question, it would probably be have something to do with what was something doing with this piece of anatomy or what was it, you know, how, how was this group behaving, you know? I feel like I'd be inclined to say, tell me how things started flying. Yeah. Yeah. How, what, what is the actual story of the origin of flight in each of the groups that has done it? That'd be a good one. That, that, those would be the kind of things for me. Also the entire fossil record of snakes. Yes. Yes. Show me the whole thing. Yep. Yep. Let's, let's solve that mystery. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, those are good ones. Those missing origins would be pretty good. I I might have to join you on that. Yeah. Our next question is from Thomas. What is the dream for your future science communication output? Would you consider trying video or maybe one day TV? Hmm. That depends, Thomas. Do you work for the TV company? If you're scouting. If you're... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know that I have a specific image in mind. Just however we can reach people. Yeah. We're always thinking about, are there new things we could do? Are there new avenues we can explore? We've done some video. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done some stuff on YouTube. We did some stuff with DragonCon. And we've had a lot of fun doing video. And that's something that we definitely plan on doing more in the future. Uh, if someone wants to give us a TV show, absolutely we would do a TV right. show. That'd be great. Yeah, I think the, the bottom line for us is we, we want to keep doing common descent like this is definitely the kind of stuff mm-hmm. we want to keep doing and ideally as this and and we want to keep doing it right like yeah for education's sake and make right. sure that it is it is hitting that goal in whatever form we do it in but otherwise we're pretty open to yeah. other mediums well, potentially and, and what people want Yes. What is useful and interesting and, and, and engaging for people. So uh, every now and then people will send us suggestions, not for episode topics, but for like, hey, this would be a cool project for mm-hmm. you guys to do. Do a video series or blah, blah, blah. And we can't promise to do all those things because a lot of that comes down to time or resources. knowledge or resources. But we're always, always interested to hear what people what our audience is interested to see us do. Mm -hmm. And some of those absolutely could end up being fun stuff. That's how Spooky started. We did a speculative evolution episode and people were like, ooh, talk more about that. So we started Spooky and it's been great. Yeah. Michael asks, aside from Pokemon and Tabletop, what other nerdy things are you guys into? Oh, I guess for me, the next, or probably not the next biggest one, even even bigger than those. Even bigger than those would be Lego (laughs) Lego yeah. is my go-to. I just recently looked at a new uh, a, a custom design from a person online and rebuilt it on my computer so that I can hopefully make it. Yeah, Lego is, yeah. is well, my you go-to just passion. Set up your Iron Legion, yep, <laughs> uh, Iron Man suit collection over there after Christmas. Yeah, I got the little Iron Man display for Christmas, and my family was like, "Oh, we're glad you like it." And I was like, "No, no, this is a this seems like a simple set, but it's going to allow me to do so much more with what I already have." <laughs> Which brings us to another thing that is a nerdy thing we're both really into, which is superhero stuff. Yeah, the MCU especially. We are big, big, uh, devout fans of the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. We are hopefully optimistic about DC movies. Yep. That someday they're going to be good. Yep. That will we're... get more like Shazam. <laughs> more like Shazam. And less like everything else. Like all the rest. 
Um, so big on uh, on stuff like that. I like Star Wars. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I love Star Wars. Will's Will's pretty into Star Wars. <laughs> That's yeah. Right now, you if you look on my shelves, you've got the Lego shelves, and then above that, my Yoda and other Star Wars stuff shelves. Yep. Uh, and I mean, listen to S- Silver Screen Science and Spooky, and yeah, we 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 like a lot of nerdy pop culture stuff. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Jill asks, are all carnivorous dinosaurs theropods, and are all theropods carnivorous? Good question. The answer is no to both. Yes. Um, I don't know that there are any known non-theropod dinosaurs later, like Cretaceous Jurassic, that are definitely carnivorous. Carnivorous. There have been some suggestions of, uh, of traditionally herbivorous dinosaurs or that we think of as being herbivorous as possibly being omnivorous. Yeah, omnivory there gets was, uh, suggested. Leoningosaurus was suggested that it might have eaten a fish mm-hmm. that one time. But there are a lot of early dinosaurs that were not actually theropods that were carnivorous. Yes. Uh, early ancestors of sauropods were carnivorous. In fact, basically the start of dinosaurs is all small carnivores. Yeah. And there have been plenty of theropods that became herbivorous mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the a lot of ornithomimids are thought to have been at least partially herbivorous therizinosaurs are thought to have been partially herbivorous and the world today is full of herbivorous dinosaurs <laughs> tons of birds are herbivorous yes so while they're famous for being the dominant carnivores of the dinosaur world there are exceptions in both directions and i feel it's also worth mentioning that almost no animals like on average are purely carnivorous or herbivorous. Like, True. Talk to someone who works on a farm and ask them how many thing, how many animals they've watched their like horses or cows eat. Yep. <laughs> there was I just saw a news article the other day about a cow just casually eating a snake. Oh yeah. And I, so yep. like herbivores will eat meat when they get the chance because that's a great source of protein. And there's we learn more and more as we actually pay attention that there's tons of carnivorous animals. Yeah. That will eat fruit when it's put in front of them. Yep. Even gators. Yep. So the truth is probably a lot of them were doing more of that than we realize. But yes, there's been some that we've even been able to identify. Laura asks, do you speak a second language? Would it be helpful in paleontology to do so? I don't. And yes, it probably would. <laughs> <laughs> I have. So when I was in college, I studied a bunch of different languages. These days, I don't. I have not been keeping up with it. I've run out of people to talk with. Right. Um, but I studied French, and I was pretty good at it at a time. I was pretty good at Mandarin mm-hmm. at a time. I was almost good at Japanese, and then that didn't last very long. Yeah. For some reason, that one just slipped away. Maybe mm-hmm. I had too many languages in my head. I need to watch more anime. That must be it. Um, but I did... I don't know that I've ever really used my other language abilities for paleontology, but I did take a trip to China and mm-hmm. do research in China for about two months several years ago. And in part, uh, because I was interested in going to China and developing my sort of cultural knowledge and language skills, and I did get to use my language skills a bit while I was over there. Mm-hmm. So would it be helpful? Absolutely. I think that speaking a second language is generally something that would be helpful in basically every facet <laughs> Of life. It is a good thing to have. I have, I've tried, I've been in multiple language classes throughout my schooling and I do, I do not have an ear for language. 
I have trouble with English. <laughs> I'm dyslexic it probably at least a little bit. Yeah. And so I have trouble with this language, so other languages are difficult. I love... But I encourage everyone to go <laughs> learn. <laughs> I loved studying foreign languages. Someday I'll get back into it. But yeah, there's tons of paleontology in South America, in Asia, uh, of course, all across Europe. Yep. Tons of reasons to learn other languages. We have another grouped question next. Oxyan asks, do you think an extinct species could have developed human-like social structure as well as human-like cognition and or intelligence? And Anthony asks, what do you think of the Silurian hypothesis? Do you think it's possible for a civilization as advanced as some ancient humans, human ones, to have existed in deep time? Hmm... So do we think various degrees of humanness of something comparable to intelligence, cognition, and then even civilization could have existed in deep time? Um, It's hard to say because our sample size is one. Our sample size is one. And I think I think the biggest aspect of this would be that most of our understanding of ancient human civilizations are the things we've made. Not right. the people from those civil like right. Well, I think that civilization, in the sense of like buildings and mm-hmm. structures and stuff, probably d- didn't exist in deep time. No, the, the Silurian hypothesis that Anthony's referring to, I believe, was a paper a few years ago that was basically, if I remember right, it was a couple of paleontologists or geologists saying, if there was, what would we see? Yeah, like, what let's would we look scientifically for? entertain this idea and sort of go, okay what would that actually look like what would the evidence potentially be if that was something that could possibly happen and i don't think that that would completely escape the fossil record no in terms of like cognition and society and intelligence outside of civilization specifically that's hard to say for a couple reasons but one of them is it, we don't there's not like a definition of cognition or intelligence yeah. like does what, a termite is... colony count as mm-hmm. a major society? Tool use is difficult. You know, what degree of tool use becomes human-like intelligence? If you're a crow that catches bugs with a stick, that kind of thing, I'm sure, has existed all all over the place in the yeah. fossil record. Well, and there's also the, like, the sci-fi sort of s- scenario to think about where there is the potential that a, a species, a race, gained intelligence that we would recognize as comparable to our own from our perception of intelligence, and just their version of society didn't involve the building of artificial structures and right. artificial tools. Like, would cephalopods, if they created a society akin to humans, would they build buildings? Like... Why? Would that be something that they did or would they just continue to live in caves and, you know, gather there? Like, yeah. could there there could have been something. It just might be alien to what we recognize as civilization. Right. Uh, but then does that count? So it's one of those, like, is it possible? Surely. Probably. Yeah. Did it actually happen? Probably not. Probably not. There's I, no real reason to think that it did. But by default, it makes more sense to suspect that that hasn't happened. Yes. Until there is evidence to suggest otherwise. Yeah. But a fun thought experiment, certainly. Oh, for sure. Seri asks, did all dinosaurs have feathers? 
I'm a wildlife artist, and since listening to the podcast, I would love to do paleo art, but it is so scary. Which dinosaurs would you like to see more of in art? Fun! Uh, no, as far as we can tell, it doesn't seem that all dinosaurs had feathers. But there are definitely some groups that seem like feathers were very common, if not the majority trend. Right. Dromaeosaurs, oviraptorosaurs, possibly across all solurosaurs. Yeah. And then a few ornithischians like Psittacosaurus that have feathers or feather-like things. Quills. But there are plenty of dinosaurs with extensive, uh, well, plenty, at least a handful. Yes. With extensive skin impressions that don't seem to have feathers like uh, that famous Iguanodon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I want to say Ceratosaurus uh, or Carnotaurus, maybe yep, it yep. was, that had s- decent skin impressions are known somewhere that don't seem to show any sign of feathers. The Ankylosaurs yep. that have been ridiculously well-preserved don't look like they had feathers. So, yeah, lots of groups seem like they did not have feathers. This is part of why the this is part of why it's such a mystery as to whether feathers were a dinosaur thing or only a some like did it evolve and was lost in some dinosaurs evolve only in this group. Right. And as far as which dinosaurs like to see more of in art, I think herbivores in general, yeah, probably could use a lot more especially the like herbivores living their lives not being attacked by predators and maybe some of the ones that are n- not the showy ceratopsians like yeah just just some more just some boring yeah, herbivores mu- some mundane <laughs> in their life you know what the, the equivalent of a herd of uh, uh, of gazelle or zebras like the the common stuff yeah it was like most of the times i see deer they're not being attacked by wolves yeah they were just walking around my backyard like stuff like that would be nice I feel like just to remind people that these were animals and it wasn't an action movie every time yeah. dinosaurs were doing something. I think that's a... Yeah. I, I'd agree with that. Also, uh, I can totally understand why paleo art would seem very scary uh, to get into. But if you want to do it, you should totally do it. Find cool paleo artists and become friends with them and then be awesome paleo artists together. Absolutely. Our next question is grouped again. We have a few people who ask similar questions. Uh, the first two... Is Jamie asked, as science communicators, how do you answer public inquiries regarding creationism without offending anyone or getting fired? And Good question. In association with that, Eric asked, what is the best way to communicate with friends, family, co-workers that disagree with evolution and the geologic timescale? Good questions. Yeah, both Uh, very good. Profound questions. Um... So we're we're dealing with the public as part of your job as a Mm -hmm. science communicator is, of course, different from dealing with family or friends. Yes. uh, Because family and friends can get very personal and be difficult to navigate. Well, there's an emotional connection there that there isn't with Joe Schmo who walked into the museum. Right. Generally speaking, when it comes to professionally, uh, and and some of this is, is definitely applicable in other situations, professionally, when you're communicating science with people who are not on board, whatever, it could be a creationist mindset, it could be generally uh, uh, anti-deep time, or mm-hmm. and or, or people who come in the museum and don't believe the fossils are yeah. real. D- deny that fossils are a thing. Anything like that. Uh, one, probably the first rule that I try to remember, uh, which is helpful for not offending anyone or getting fired, is that... My job as a science communicator isn't to convince anyone to change their mind. Yes, because you can't. 
Because you, number one, not the job. Yeah. The job is to present information for people to to take with them uh, insights, perspective, and info about science. But then also, yeah, because you're almost certainly not going to change a mind. A, because you're only with them for five, ten minutes. And B, because that's not really how minds work. Every ounce of research that has been done on how what we believe and how we change those beliefs shows that trying to change someone's mind not like most of the time actually makes them more resolute in their original belief right because they go on the defensive yes and that ha- that's just human psychology that's how our brains work unless we train them to do otherwise we don't want to be proven wrong yeah and, and so, that happens in little things when it's you know anytime someone's like hey you're wrong about that thing there's always a little bit of that i'm not so sure i am and when it is something that in, is tied into someone's personal belief yeah, system core beliefs. or politics or whatever, that's a big... If, if you go in with the mentality that you're going to have a conversation and change their mind, you're going to be disappointed every time. And they're going to be upset. <laughs> and they're going to be upset. So as, as a science communicator in a museum or a similar position, the job is, here's the information. Do with here's it what, what you will. Here's what we do. Here's how the science works. Here's the conclusions we've come to. If it is their perspective that they're not on board with that, that they listen to you and they say, cool, I don't believe any of that. Okay. All right. I I might, that might be a shame to me. I might think, oh, well, darn. Yep. But that's okay. Yes. They heard what you said, hopefully, and then they're going to go off and do what they will with it. The, the the big thing to remember is don't make it personal. Yeah. Don't let it get personal for you and don't make it personal for them as best you can. It's just about here's the information. Here's why uh, uh, it is supported by science. Or if you're talking to friends and family, here's why I support that. Here's what is convincing for me. Here's the information. They're going to have their own perspective. Yep. If you're having a friend-family conversation, listen to it, understand where they're coming from, and recognize that at the end of the day, you probably aren't going to change anybody's mind. Yeah, the what I would always tell my trainees is you can only teach those willing to learn. That is basically a universal truth for human psychology. Unless someone is open to new information and open to the idea of learning something new and changing their mind... You can't make those two things happen. No matter how good your argument is, no matter how good the info is, no matter how charismatic you are when you present it, if they decided before walking in that their mind is set, then their mind is set. Yeah. So accept that, do what you can, and move on. My advice for the tour guides at the museum when I've talked to them is maintain, you know, be polite, as as always, present the information as it is, defer to the institution, right? I did not d- divine these things. Yep. I didn't, this is this is part of the scientific process and community. And then if they get real angry, call me. Yeah. <laughs> call oh. somebody else. Because as a tour guide, it's not your job, nor should it be expected of you no, to you be are... yelled at by an angry visitor who really wants to argue with you. You are almost certainly not paid enough to put up with that. Absolutely not. And as for the family thing, when I've had to deal with that, Often what it comes to is uh, me requesting that I'm not going to try to change their mind. And I ask that they do the same. Yeah. It's that I, I'll 
lay it out flat. It was like, I'm not trying to change your mind, but you're not going to change mine. So please stop trying to. If you disagree with the things I say, then disagree with them. And if I disagree with the things you just say, I'll disagree with them. And we don't need to have a conversation about it every time. Yeah. And that's that's about it. So best of luck to both of you in your endeavors. (laughs) Another question on this topic was from Cody, who said, do you or your peers discuss creationism coexisting with paleontology or science in general? Uh, It it, it certainly comes up. Yes. You know, being a paleontologist, part of that career, part of that journey is understanding that there is, there are some rather strong forces out there. Opposition. In opposition to it. At the sort of broadest level, paleontology doesn't exist in opposition to people's personal belief system. Mm -mm. So, like, there are tons of religious people out there who have no problem with paleontology or even being paleontologists. Absolutely. I know plenty of people who manage to maintain their own belief in a system of divine morality or even in a creation in the sense of this universe being part of a divine plan or whatever their version of a religious belief is that doesn't conflict at all with their understanding and acceptance of paleontological science i have a number of friends who fall into that category the part where friction comes in tends to be when a person's interpretation of what that story means literally conflicts with what scientific evidence suggests to be the reality on our planet. Yeah, it's that their their perceived version of reality is clashing with science's observed version of reality. And oftentimes that leads to movements like creationism, as we're normally referring to it, or intelligent design, that effectively are anti-science. Or they're actively either trying to disprove scientific theories or replace them. Right. As this is what actually is true. And in those cases, that can't really coexist with paleontology or science in general because it really is working in opposition to those things. Yes. So, short answer, it's a real complex scenario. And just like the question earlier about public misunderstandings or or uh, being on different pages from the scientific community, I, it's not going away anytime soon. Nope. That's, it's just, <laughs> if you're a paleontologist, that's a, a factor of society to be aware of. Not unless suddenly all humans get on the same page about something all at the same time. Hive <laughs> <laughs> <I've> mind. <laughs> We've got another couple of questions here on a similar note. Larissa asks... In this year of restrictions, how do digs work? How does the science community work together during a pandemic? And also, your boy Lucas, my dudes, yes, you have to say the whole thing, (laughs) asks, how has the global pandemic affected the work of field paleontologists? What social distancing measures and health checks are they taking? Good questions and and poignant questions. Indeed. Uh, As far as like restrictions on digs and, you know, still working and stuff like at our museum at the museum here they've just been careful about how many people they have in the lab at once and since we dig in pits how many people are in each pit at a given time and sanitizing behind so it's been fairly easy the biggest part is 
there wasn't really a field season of a bunch of people coming in to do the dig like we usually would have. Right. A much more limited crew. Yes. So that's really been one of the biggest restrictions is just can't have as many numbers of people working at one time as normally might be the goal. Yeah. I know that a lot of science has moved to online. Yeah. Uh, online outreach, online conferences mm-hmm. has been a big thing. Uh, there have been a lot of Zoom meetings, yep. uh, both within departments and uh, internationally or, or inter-institutionally. Raising those stocks ever higher. <laughs> so it's it's certainly become difficult in terms of research. It, you can't travel. That's really, yeah. that's a real big Especially for issue. the field paleontologist, uh, Lucas's question. I Your boy, Lucas. Uh, <laughs> our boy, Lucas. Our boy, Lucas. <laughs> I, I I assume there's lots of researchers who would have gone out of country that yes. weren't able to. And even within the country. Yeah. Field work, other lab work. I know that there were people who were planning on going to other museums for their research, and it didn't happen. Uh, for some people, we, they've been able to supplement it, I know, with inter you know, online communication or uh, digital sharing of, of info. But for other people, it just hasn't happened. Well, and I know a some, lot of projects are on hold. Yeah. And I know some people have been able to take, you know, lab work home and just yep. set up kind of lab conditions in a spare room and work on some fossils or work under the microscope and work on things that way. So it people have definitely adapted. Uh, but yeah, it's it's slowed things down. It's made things a bit more clunky. And it has, there have been some projects and, you know, uh, trips that, have been stopped altogether yeah. just because it's not feasible. At Gray, we have had a limited crew. Everyone wears masks. Um, everyone is taking social distancing precautions mm-hmm. as best as they can. Things are cleaned regularly. Uh, I don't think we've had health checks the way that I know some, especially more populous places. Yes. Uh, and I know some universities are doing, like, taking temperatures and stuff. Yeah, whenever Our I crew is to... very small. Whenever I go into the school to tutor, I take my temperature every day. Uh, and then outreach has moved to online. Mm-hmm. We've been doing, for Gray, we've been doing a lot of we- online work. Yeah. Uh, trying to do online events and projects and stuff. So it's it's still happening. It's still happening. It's tricky, but it's it's moving along. I think, uh, and I hope that at the after the pandemic, we will come away from this with a better understanding that you can do some science online and that you can have virtual conferences because that will hopefully open up opportunities for more uh, outreach and in-reach communication in the future. Intra and outra. Uh, uh, yes, intra and, and intra yes. communication. Our next question is from Alexander, who asks, Are fossils ever found in rocks younger than the fossils themselves? For instance, are there any Pleistocene-era rocks that have Cretaceous-era fossils embedded in them? Oh, good question. So you can definitely get what is called reworking of fossil material, where if you had adjacent layers that are of different ages, you can have fossils sort of tumbling from the older sediments into the younger sediments, or mixing of those fossils and sediments. You wouldn't get, so for example, uh, the question says Pleistocene-era rocks with Cretaceous fossils embedded in them. That's not something that you're quite going to see yeah, because there's no mechanism really for a young rock to absorb an older fossil. 
You can certainly get older sediments with younger fossils that have sort of tumbled down the cliff and gotten mixed in with them. Mm -hmm. You can have younger fossils within older rocks. So the gray fossil site is a 5 million year old patch of clay within a layer of 500 million year old limestone. Yeah, surrounded by. Because a hole opened up and filled in with lake sediment. But the sediment the fossils are buried in is the same age as the fossils. Right. But then also that sediment will collect chunks of limestone. Yep. So as your lake was active, collecting layers and layers of sediment, not only are fossils falling in there, but rocks from the side of the sinkhole would fall in, get buried, and that rock might have a trilobite on it or something. Yes. So you have a older rock with a fossil in it buried in younger sediment. So you can get sort of that mixing. Usually it's pretty clear when that's happened. Yes. So you can see the difference between older sediment and younger sediment, older rocks and younger rocks. Well, because older fossils still had to preserve, still had to fossilize in that older sediment. Right. Even if they then erode out and fall in younger sediment and are buried and re, you know, preser- you know, re re locked into the ground, that fossil is not fossilized the same as the other things in that younger sediment. Right. So it would look different. So it's something you always have to be on the lookout for. Yes. That you have to under and this is why so much of paleontology is geology. I remember uh, when I was an undergrad, we did cave paleontology, and one of the Biggest challenges in cave paleontology is just understanding the sedimentary history of the cave. Yep. Between layers coming in and cave openings coming and going, collapses and stuff, it can be very complex, the geologic history of your site. So understanding that is one of the biggest applications of geology in the field of paleontology. Mm-hmm. So the answer is yes, and it, it can get weird. Yep. Janelle asks... Are deep-sea vents affected by mass extinction events in geologic timescales? Do they have their own timescales? Very interesting question. And I I don't know the answer readily Mm -hmm. in detail, but I would say that we probably don't have a good knowledge of how they're affected by mass extinction since we didn't know deep-sea vents existed until... Fairly recently. Yeah, like the 70s. Yeah, so we don't we don't have an understanding of their deep history. Uh, there are fossil uh, deposits that are interpreted as hydrothermal yeah. vents uh, deposits. I saw one paper that, it was a few years old at this point, but it cited like 20 of them. Okay. In total, which is honestly more than I expected. That's not bad. That's still not many, but that's not bad. So it's very hard to say if they are affected during mass extinctions. We know that a number of mass extinctions do have impacts on the deep sea. Yes, absolutely. When ocean uh, circulation changes or temperature changes, it can really mess with deep sea ecosystems. And I did see a study that was looking at fossil versus modern hydrothermal vent communities Mm -hmm. and found that modern vent communities are made of modern species. Yes. So it's not like old groups have been remaining like paleozoic types of organisms have stuck around no they have changed as right a paleozoic hydrothermal vents are going to have paleozoic hydrothermal vent creatures. organisms right so it's not that they've just been sort of locked as refuges yeah. 
uh, of lo- little lost worlds over the the eons, they do change over time, just like everything else. Yeah. So I'd assume that they are affected. How much so, or to what degree? I I don't we I don't know that we know. Yeah, I don't think so. And I think it's worth noting that our current understanding of hydrothermal vents is that they are very transient in the fact that if something changes in the you know upper crust of the planet that shuts off that vent, it can die and disappear basically overnight and another could reopen when something else shifts basically overnight and start being populated. So we don't, we still don't fully understand how they get from vent to vent or how long a vent typically lasts or what happens. Is it the same similar population genetics or is it basically a whole new founder effect going on at each? We're still learning about, how they work. Yeah. So it's complicated. Great question. Yes, very good. TRX Dinosaurs asks our next question, which is why don't we see more modern species with extremely long necks when they were super successful in plesiosaurs and sauropods? Good question. Mm -hmm. I guess the modern world is just not as cool. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair thing to say. I don't know. Uh, Part of it is that we don't, quite understand the full story of the evolution and physiology of those long-necked... Or what they were doing with them. Because like we discussed in the sauropod episode, those long necks really seem to have been a key part of sauropod biology. Yeah. That that is something that was unique to sauropods in many ways. And I would... It's almost certainly the same thing is true of plesiosaurs... It might be because they point out that it was super successful. Yes. And it makes me think of, I think we've talked about this some somewhere, that there are all sorts of different gliding animals mm-hmm. in the fossil record. And I remember reading a study about Charovipteryx, which is the delta wing gliding reptile from the Triassic, yep. the, where the legs had these big gliding membranes and it made this sort of triangle. And I remember reading a study that suggested that that body shape for a glider actually seems to be more efficient than the common gliding body styles that we see of like on the arms or between the arms and legs, like gliding squirrels. So it's better, but probably harder to evolve. Yeah. more that, uh, It's less likely to come about. Right. That, that That is such a strange thing to do with your body that it is more likely that natural selection will divert you from that path before you get to that place that you'll get your neck will get to a certain length in the case of long necked animals. And then that's good enough for mm-hmm. you. And that there isn't a selection towards that longer neck or that weirder body style, or that there is selection against it for yeah. some reason. So it might just be that long necks are weird. Mm-hmm. And that if you get it, then it works great. But the path to getting there is long enough and unusual enough that most of the time it just doesn't work out. I think it's also worth saying that we don't know why they had those long necks. We don't know exactly what benefit it gave to sauropods. And people don't even know exactly how plesiosaurs swam with those necks, let alone what they were doing with them. We assume they were somehow helping in food acquisition. Mm Mm-hmm. But was that it? Was there more? How was it helping? We don't know. So there could also be the fact that what they were useful for is no longer a situation as commonly today as it was during that time. True. That 
the things plesiosaurs were hunting aren't around or aren't common anymore. And so it's not, you don't need to have a long neck to hunt because you're not hunting the same things or you're not competing with other animals that made a long neck useful. There's a lot of reasons. It's kind of like we don't have any giant predators that are on the size of predatory dinosaurs today. And well, what would they eat? You know, why would you need to be the size of T-Rex? Right. So we don't know. Yeah. Good question. (laughs) Next question is from Kevin who asks, in episode 67, hey, that was the La Brea episode. David mentions, hey, that's me. <laughs> David mentions he might be on a panel with Pamela Gay and that Astronomy Cast had influence on the creation of Common Descent. Did you indeed join Pamela on a panel? And what specifically about Astronomy Cast made your podcast what it is today? Well, did you? I did. So yeah, last year at DragonCon, uh, I was invited to be on a panel about how scientists date things. And we talked about recent stuff, like archaeological stuff, all the way up to astronomical stuff. And Dr. Pamela Gay was also on the panel, sat right next to me, uh, who was the astronomer sort of part of that equation. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, we didn't actually talk really outside of the podcast. So I wouldn't say that I got to meet Dr. Gay. I just sat next to her on this panel where we talked about some fun science stuff. But she is one of the hosts of Astronomy Cast, which is a podcast that I, I, not so much these days, but I used to listen to Astronomy Cast quite a bit. And yeah, it was one of the, the podcasts that kind of influenced my early thinking about podcasting. Uh, specifically, I liked their format of, first, I like that there's two voices, that one voice is kind of, you have the information for this uh, topic and the other voice is there in a supportive role, mm-hmm. which we kind of do. And I liked, for me, I really liked that each episode has a topic. Black holes, supernovas, uh, the Curiosity rover, or whatever it is. Those are a couple of the things that I saw and thought, I like those aspects of a podcast. And kind of helped influence the development of this podcast. And it's worked out pretty well. And it's worked out pretty well so far. (laughs) Our next question is from Hannah, who appears to be five years old. Hi, Hannah. And asks, what did Stegosaurus sound like? Oh, good question. Once again, there is a very short answer, which is, we don't know. We don't know. Because the parts of Stegosaurus that made noise, right, the throat, maybe the nose uh, Mm -hmm. uh, stuff inside the nose, don't fossilize typically very well. There have been plenty of studies on dinosaurs that have looked at, okay, well, how... What are your nose passages shaped like? The air space, where the air would be moving. If you were pushing air through there to make noise. So there have been some studies of what kind of noise might you have made? What part of your face might you have used for making noise? I don't know if there's been studies like that with Stegosaurus specifically. Yeah, and I don't know how much we know about whether Stegosaurus was social. Like, did it travel with other Stegosaurus Right, did it need to communicate uh-huh. with its with its other with other stegosaurs? Because there is the chance that, like some big animals that are alive today, it wasn't very noisy. That's true. Yeah. Like rhinos, yeah, rhinos I don't think are very noisy. Don't make a lot of noise. They're not, you know, they they do make noise, but it's not a complicated like ooh, like a big loud noise. It's just right. like huffs and grunts and stuff. Right. Whereas an elephant has all sorts of noises that it makes because it's communicating yeah. with other elephants. But then you have things like white-tailed deer, which are super social, and they make like little right. <laughs> huffs and chuffs and stuff, and that's about it. So 
I, usually in documentaries, they're shown making like a big bugle, like yeah, you know, Ooh. yeah, like bellowing Jurassic Park noises. Yeah, exactly. But Which, they might have just been doing snuffles and yeah. or like a giraffe. Yeah, giraffes have kind of big animal and if, uh, social. From what I understand, they sound kind of like a, a goat or sheep. Yeah, they make a little bay, a little yeah. bah. Very, very simple, quiet noises. So we don't know. Yeah. Uh, and if we find that out someday, it will be really helpful in understanding how stegosaurs lived. Yes, it'll be it, important. The noises an animal makes are very important to understanding how their lifestyle was like. Our next question comes from Hans, who paints a picture. All right, I'm ready. A giant tortoise is racing along a railroad track at immense speeds. Ahead, the track splits. On one track is the sole survivor of a legged snake lineage facing the wrong way. On the other track, the last surviving member of an armadillo sucus sleeping with its soft belly exposed. The tortoise will surely kill whichever creature it stomps across, but you have a lever which will force the tortoise onto one track or the other. What do you do? I mean, me? What, which one do I do? I know what I do. I mean, I know which one I do. Here's what I think happens. <laughs> you ready? I think that the two of us, faced with this scenario, heroically rush towards the tracks. (laughs) And since most ancient legged snakes are the size of like a large king snake or smaller, I grab it and rush it off the tracks. And since Armadillo Sucus is like 200 pounds or something like that, you body check it off the tracks. Yep, yep. And then the four of us enjoy some turtle soup. Yeah. Yes, no, I think this is, that's exactly what I was picturing. I think that that's the, that's the solution to the tortoise problem. Yes, <laughs> we figured it out finally. <laughs> Next, we have another couple of grouped questions. One from Arthropods Are Still Better. Consistent. Yes, who asks, what museums of natural history have you visited inside and outside the U.S.? Which are your favorites? And Nathan, who asks... Can you please list some more recommendations for sites or museums for fossil and evolution info, including sites you personally hope to visit? Cool question. Absolutely. So I have been to many museums, and I have heard of many more museums. Mm -hmm. Uh, My favorite museum, sort of like my... I was raised on this museum, is the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And my version of that's the... Fernbank Museum in Atlanta. And we have both had the the joy of being able to take each other to our uh, childhood museums. Both really good. I've been to the museum in Salt Lake City, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently got to go to the Royal Terrell uh, up in Canada, which was also really cool. I didn't get... I I went through London once many years ago. Uh, on the way to and from SVP and did not get to go to the Natural History Museum of London, which I wish that I had. Bummer. That's one I have been recommended and I'd like to go. Of course, there are a a number of cool museums in Germany. Great Mm -hmm. place for paleontological history. So there's all sorts of museums all over the world, some of which I've been to and some of which I'd like to go to. And as far as sites to visit, I mean, Great Fossil Site. Yep. Certainly. Should be the top of your list. Top tier. Uh, the La Brea Tar Pits was awesome. Been there. Really cool. Um, and then, of course, honestly, there's a bunch of fossil sites that are UNESCO World Heritage Sites. True. Like the Burgess Shale. Like, I want to say the Messel Pit, uh, which is in Germany, is also UNESCO site. The Solenhofen. I don't know if the Solenhofen's a UNESCO site, but it's a very famous historical site. Uh, Archaeopteryx comes mm-hmm, from the Solenhofen mm-hmm. limestone. 
So yeah, there's all sorts of, uh, those are the handful that are off the top of my head museums that I have either been to or would like to go to. Yeah, my list is much smaller because I've never, I've never been to a museum outside the country, uh, unfortunately. And I've really only been to museums mostly here on the East Coast. Like I've been to the Florida Museum Mm -hmm. of Natural History, which was awesome. Good museum. It was a good one. I've been to the, I think it was the Houston Science Center, which was a really cool, it had some fossil and natural history stuff, but also had lots of cool like engineering and stuff like that. Were you there when we went to SEAVP in Mississippi? Yes, I was. Uh, that museum, I, I was, it's a long time ago, and I don't remember much about that Natural History Museum, except that they had a two-headed snake. Yeah. So cool. Yep. Yep. Because I, I remember that because we were going through, and I saw it first, and I was like, David! <laughs> <laughs> Quickly! So yeah, there's some really good ones out there. I have yeah. lots more that I need to go to, so my yeah. list of want to go to is much bigger than my list of been to. Finn asks, will there be more live streams in the future? The four live chats earlier this year were a lot of fun. Good question. And yeah, most likely uh, we've enjoyed live streaming whenever we've done it. Yeah, it's and been a good time. We've had fun and we are looking into doing more stuff like that. We don't have announceable specific plans right now, uh, but almost surely, yes. Yeah. The live streams of various types and topics. Yes. So stay tuned. Kale says, I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about what global ecosystems might look like if there were no hominins. But if instead all the extinct charismatic animal groups from throughout from throughout history were magically brought back to life into the current era ecosystem, what would be the selective pressures? What happens in the water, on land, and in the sky? Hmm. So it sounds like basically, what if we took all of everyone's favorite prehistoric creatures, mm-hmm. dinosaurs, pterosaurs, mammals, and so on, put them all together in the modern world, and got rid of humans? Yep. What would happen? <laughs> Chaos. Yeah. Dogs and cats living together. Uh, Mass hysteria. I think, I mean, right off the bat, my guess is that many of those different groups wouldn't survive in the same world together. Yeah, because... At least not well. If you were to... If if you bring out the charismatic ones... Dinosaurs, Ice Age megafauna, the the big marine reptiles, and also megalodon-style sharks and stuff... You know, or whatever charismatic means to you, mm-hmm. uh, you're probably not bringing out all the things they need in their ecosystems to survive. True. You're probably not bringing back all the things they would require to live a healthy, happy life. Yeah. Are their favorite plants charismatic enough? Exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's, you know, how much of what, how much are you bringing back? Are you bringing back T-Rex and everything it would need or just T-Rex? Right. So I think lots of them would probably be missing stuff. You would also have them causing each other to go extinct left and right. Yeah, I don't know if you could have all the coolest big dinosaurs and all the coolest big land mammals occupying the world at the same time. Well, I'm th- and I'm thinking about like in the ocean where it's like, are you going to bring back every similarly sized big predatory ocean creature? Mm-hmm. All right, because that's too many big ocean creatures. Right. You know. And are your giant pterosaurs going to survive okay in a world of Full of tiny birds yep. that we still have today. Are are they going to be outcompeted by the multitudes of smaller things? Yeah. So in this scenario, I think very likely. I don't know what would shake out at the end. Uh, that's that's I guess the bigger question. Yeah. Because I, I think there wins. Yeah. There'd be lots of. I think you would be random almost. Like. Yeah. Well, probably, it, it also depends. Like, are you? Are we assuming that the global? Yes. That's conditions what I was, mm-hmm. are because. 
it's real cold these days. Yeah. Would dinosaurs who adapted to the world, to the iceless world of the Jurassic and Cretaceous, even be healthy most parts of the world today? And so th- that probably be your biggest answer is those charismatic fossil organisms that come back that lived on an earth, lived at a time where earth was similar to how it is today would probably do better than most others. Mm -hmm. And every modern organism would probably do better than most others. Yeah. So after a time of utter chaos, (laughs) probably it would shake out with a lot of modern ones still around some being replaced by lucky fossil ones. And most of the extinct charismatic organisms going extinct again. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And don't forget about that lysine contingency. <laughs> Our next question comes from Slam Jambert, that Slam Jam fool with that Slam Jam cool. Hey, Slam. Welcome back, Slam Jambert. Slam Jambert also paints a picture. <clears throat> you have been granted the power to resurrect an extinct species. However, you must sacrifice an existing species with a similar niche to revive the old one. What will you bring back? What will you replace? What are the consequences? The choice is yours and yours alone. Mmm. That's a good question. Isn't that fun? That's a fun one. Hmm. The niche part is what is what makes it trickiest. Yeah, it's the equivalent exchange aspect yeah. here that makes this this tricky. I'm pretty sure I know what my answer is. Go ahead. Um, p- pick any suitable animal from the world today and replace it with Mosasaurus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what it is. Yeah. It might be like the big predatory whales yeah like belugas or or maybe not sperm whales those are like deep divers but some of those or like all hammerheads or whatever yeah i don't care pick one of them get it out of there and bring me mosasaurs that's what i want i think that's pretty good i feel like cetaceans are going to be taking a hit yeah they are i think that's the one that would be have to be in some, my world. Some part of them. And if you're doing all Mosasaurs, then most of them, maybe. I don't this know. Is, yeah, well, I guess you you could pick... We, well, to avoid the scenario Kale uh, described, yeah. where it's just absolute chaos, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's and there's too much, I'll be modest. Yeah. Just bring... Just just one species. Yeah. Maybe a few species for, for proliferation purposes. I think along a similar note, I might have to say I'd be willing to sacrifice a few monitor lizards for some terrestrial crocs. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need all of them. I don't, you know, <laughs> we don't have to get rid of all of them, but yeah. Like those water monitors? Yeah. Start out small? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Uh, or I'll get rid of some iguanas and get me back a herbivorous croc. Ooh, that's true. Yeah, I'll if you give me, give me Simosuchus and I can get rid of name an iguana, I'll do that in a heartbeat. Where do I sign? Also, I wonder... Because Slam Jambert says, what are the consequences? If we're replacing it with a, something with a similar niche, I think down the line you'll have consequences where yes. either your transplanted extinct animal goes extinct, like we said in the previous thing, or it means that in a few more million years, there's more mosasaurs yeah. and more terrestrial crocs. Yeah, and I, th- I guess really it would be if we ended up replacing our animal with an extinct one, who is not up to task for the modern world, who just doesn't fit in and goes extinct again, we've effectively eliminated two species. That's true. <laughs> and that means we've... No more belugas. Yeah, whatever animal we replaced is missing. So now there's an open 
niche. There's an open socket in the ecosystem. Oops. That would have to be filled in by others. True. Uh, so that's really the biggest threat here is that we choose an unsuccessful organism. Or yeah. we end up picking one that becomes... Too successful. Overly invasive. Yeah. Ooh, invasive mosasaurs. And just Simotuchuses all over the place, which really there's no consequences of that that I can see. Either one of these is, these, these seem great. That's an improvement on all fronts. A consequence. (laughs) That's a gift. Yeah, that's a, that's a a, blessing. (laughs) That's a bonus. Stephanie asks, deep sea animals that use chemosynthesis, which one do you think is most interesting? Ooh. I think I got to go with tube worms. Tube worms are pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. Well, they're so big. Yeah. They're so much bigger than you expect, especially from an animal that thrives on chemosynthesis, yes. on, on drawing energy from chemical reaction, from, from the chemicals being spat out of the ocean floor. I'd have to say that's probably my vote. Uh, on a side note to that, the scaled snail, the the iron Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the snail. iron-footed snail. Yep, that builds up iron shingles on its body from that it absorbs from the water mm-hmm. is not quite chemosynthesis, but it is utilizing the chemicals out of the water to do something really cool. Yeah. And that's, that's probably my most favorite animal that does weird stuff with water chemistry. Yeah. But yeah, two worms for chemosynthesis for chemosynthesis. Yeah. No, I agree. Good, good animals. Matt asks, what qualifications are needed to work at an aquarium? It's always been a dream. It'll depend on which aquarium. Uh, the one I worked at needed you to have a high school degree, needed you to uh, be going either in college for a related degree, science or education for an educator, and some sort of you know science f- animal route for... Yeah, zoology or ichthyology or something. For the animal care people. Or have that degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the animal care people often wanted you to have some animal experience. Uh, even if it was just volunteering, that you have been in the room with a wild animal right. before we hire you to be in the room with wild animals. <laughs> and so a lot of places like zoos and aquariums, if you're if you're wanting to work with the animals, you need to spend some time working with the animals f- for free. You need to volunteer some time and get some experience doing that typically before they're going to be willing to chance putting you in charge of anything or paying you to take care of their animals. Yeah, makes sense. And it's, that's, it's, it's got that typical tough break of how am I supposed to get work experience when no one will hire me, but most zoos and aquariums take volunteers, have volunteer programs. Right. So if you're wanting to work with the animals, that's your, that that's probably going to be your first step. If you're just wanting to work there and talk about the animals, uh, you can also still volunteer and that will get your foot in lots of doors. When a position opens up, if one's not open at your local place. Uh, otherwise, it a lot of the people who are educators at my aquarium weren't animal specific. You know, they learned most of their animal facts coming in. And then other people were very animal focused and learned a lot of their education skills coming in. So you don't have to be already perfectly formed animal interpreter when you first go there. So, yeah, yeah. you know. It, it, go to a place that you want to work at that has the things you want to work with or talk about. See if they have a job opening. And if not, if you want to, if you really want to work there, volunteer there and do a good job because lots of those places hire out of their volunteer pools all the time. Yeah. Well, best of luck, Matt. Yeah. When you get that job, uh, show us around behind the scenes. Absolutely. Remember, we we got you the advice that got you to the aquarium job. Remember where you came from. Remember us little guys. Matt. <laughs> <laughs>
Samuel asks, are there any otherwise relevant topics you've totally ruled out for future episodes, whether due to research requirements, personal feelings, or some other reason? Oh, good question. Um, the short answer is yes, sort of. Yeah. So we have gotten topic requests. Uh, every now and then we'll get one that is either, not not necessarily totally ruled out, but sometimes we'll get a request for something that's very specific. Yes. Like it's a one species sort of thing or... Or something so specific that we think, well, I don't know that an entire episode could be this. But we might combine it with something else. And we've done that before. There Absolutely. Have, we've had episodes where one of the requests was for a part of this episode. Yeah. Or people, multiple people requested different organisms from one big group. And we did an episode for the bigger group. Right. And included all those in it. And then on the other hand, sometimes we'll get broad requests that end up applying to multiple. Mm -hmm. So early on, uh, we had people who requested plants. Okay, well, we're not going to do a plants episode, but we will do individual groups of plants as different episodes. We have gotten some requests in the past that aren't the kind of thing we do on the podcast. Yes. So every now and then we'll get a request and someone, oh, this would be a cool type of episode, but it's not really, it doesn't really fit the format of the episode. Fall within the scope of what we typically cover. So sometimes those might end up being a side project or something mm -hmm. down the line. So we do get requests sometimes that we're like, all right, they all go on the list. Yes. Every request goes on the list because even if right away we can't think of a way to apply it, it's on the list and maybe someday down the line we'll find a, a way to do it. Um, so yeah, there are definitely requests that we get and we go, hmm. Not sure I, how we can really do that. I'm not, I don't think that's going to be an episode, but it may get in... In a in a sideways way, at some point, we don't we don't throw away requests. That's true. Yeah, so we, we save all of them. Please don't let this discourage anyone from requesting stuff. <laughs> and uh, as part of the question, there's nothing. There's not anything that we've like preemptively ruled out. Like if anyone requests this, we're not doing it. We've already decided. Right. Like we haven't. We don't have any topics that we've already decided we won't do. That it, we decide as things are requested. Yeah. In, on in an individual basis. So, yeah, there's nothing that we that's already off the list that's not on it yet. Yeah. There's no such thing as a bad request. Yes. What, absolute worst comes to worst. We get a request. We're not sure how to do it. And then we theoretically never figure out a way. Yeah. And it becomes one of the things on the list that gets mentioned. or uh, Who knows what will happen it in will, the It becomes our unfinished business when we become ghosts. That's right. Ghost podcast. And it'll just be all the topics we didn't do in life. Just you wait. It'll just be static and screeching <laughs> on the end, of the, the end of the microphone. Zabby asks, will we ever discover a larger theropod than the current ones we have? Or was the limit for the largest terrestrial predator already reached with dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus and Giganotosaurus? Good question. I would, if I were betting that... If we do find one that's bigger, it probably won't be by much. Yeah. And it will probably be mostly not noticeable. But that's not to say we couldn't. Uh, we don't know. We're still learning and understanding exactly what it took for animals that big to live at that size and why it was beneficial to be that big. And there's always the chance that there were some that got even bigger. But considering 
there's a number that fall within that size category and they're all pretty darn close to each other. It's it's a pretty safe bet that that is pretty much as big as we yeah. should expect to find dinosaur predatory dinosaurs getting that they have several times hit that ceiling yeah that that cap of basically the same size which it might not be that that is the largest possible for a terrestrial predator no it could be the largest possible for a theropod mm-hmm. because you know mammals you might look at the largest mammals and think well that's the largest possible for a land mammal but it's definitely not the largest possible for a land animal yes. because sauropods got way bigger. So it might be that the theropod body shape isn't going to get you any bigger than that. Or it could be that the Mesozoic meant that you couldn't get any bigger than that no. for some reason. Or that your ecosystem was putting some constraints. It's always very difficult to say what is possible. Well, And, and you also run into things like the possible max size for like today, large cats, is bigger than both lions and tigers. Because mm-hmm. when you get an interbreeding of a lion and a tiger to make a liger, their growth impulse is different, and they get way bigger, much yeah. heavier. But they also may get too big to effectively hunt the way they would be hunting as a big cat. Right. Or if you think about people, yeah. right? humans can end up with growth situations. With gigantism. Where you grow... Much larger than the typical person. Eight or nine feet tall. But oftentimes that also comes with a number of health issues and, and, you know, skeletal issues or muscular issues. Because we're not typically built to be that size. That's not what our anatomy is uh, aligned to be healthy with. So it's always hard to know, is, is there a limit and what is the limit? Yes. Michael asks, do you have a favorite na- nature experience, paleo-related or not, that influenced your life in some way? Oh, cool question. Yeah. Yeah, that's common. For a lot of scientists have that, like, I remember when I was a kid and I did this thing and then it was a big, big inspirational moment for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have one of those. Yeah. I, do- I don't think that I have, like, a specific moment where I was, like... This is the moment that made me the person I am today. A lot of my nature interests were over time kind of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. I remember being a kid and I got into dinosaurs and then I got out of it and then I got back into it. And this time I learned a little more and I learned about the geologic time scale and then I got out of it and then I got back into it. And this time I was like, oh, my goodness, there's aquatic things that weren't dinosaurs. And I learned about those. And every time I came back to it, I gradually developed that attachment to the topic. It's, it's your friends on the outside of it. Every time he goes in, he comes back a little bit less. <laughs> I don't think that I have like, I, I can't think of a moment for me that was like sticks in my head as the defining experience for me. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember a specific moment, like single experience. Singular sensation. But I've been interested in animals since I had, going back to the time that I first can remember having memories. Uh, Like, when I was a toddler, I would be out in the yard catching bugs Mm -hmm. constantly. Like, my mom says she was, the first time I went to do it, she went to stop me because she thought I was about to crush it. Uh, And then I was just carefully holding it in my little 
toddler sausage fingers. <laughs> Since I was little, I was interested in that and good at it. And so there, pro- there may have been a moment, but I can't remember it because it was too early. But ever since I was little, I've always liked animals. Uh, my first birthday cake was an alligator. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure that may be why I first got interested in those. And I've always liked dinosaurs. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, I told people I was going to be a paleontologist when I was five. And I showed them. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, Harris always sticks to his word. Yes. <laughs> I guess my, my first field experience was pretty defining. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in college, you know, so that was pretty l- late on, I guess, in terms of formativeness of... It's not like your little kid experience. Yeah, but we're, no, we're always forming. Um, but now being, doing paleontology field work for the first time was a big experience yeah. of having that under my belt and and being able to interact with other scientists. Incidentally, also uh, that trip, which took me out to the back, the the Black Hills of South Dakota was also the first time I ever looked up and saw the Milky Way. Oh, cool. Because I grew up a a hop and a skip from New York City. Mm -hmm. I never had unpolluted skies when I grew up. And I remember being a a college kid because I had always lived in civilization. And that was the first like, real camping experience I ever had. And we were out there and I looked up from our campsite and went, wait, you can actually see them like that? <laughs> Those aren't like telescope images where, where people are like filtered or something. Yep, yep. You can actually look up and see billions of stars from here on Earth. And then I thought, man, what what we have hidden from ourselves with modern civilization. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. That's awesome. That's a, that's a good experience. <laughs> yeah. Our next question comes from Shuyi, who asks, When paleontologists found early tetrapods, like in the Carboniferous period, how do they tell if the animal was amphibian or reptile? Good question. It's actually can be difficult, especially since early tetrapods were not amphibians as we recognize them today. Right. And since early reptiles developed from those early tetrapods... There's a transition period and group of fossils that would have had potentially features of both, making them not quite perfect fits for one or the other. Right. There's not a hard line exactly. between them. But generally, there are some things you can look for in reptiles that might indicate presence of claws is one very common one. Structures of the skull. Yeah. There are common features in the skull that are pretty much true for all reptiles since those earliest ones mm-hmm. that you don't really have or not in the same way in amphibians. And there are very likely other more specific features that may be able to ID something to a group of amphibians and therefore exclude it from reptiles, even if you're missing other stuff. Right. You know, if, if it has the right backbones to be in this group of salamander, then you can you can place it there even if you can't confirm whether or not it had claws. Yeah. Often identifying what group a fossil belongs to comes down to very specific esoteric features of yes. the bone. Like when people say, well, what makes something a dinosaur? It's like, All right, well, there are a few classic general, general examples of the way the legs are, are positioned under the body. The and holes in the skull. Holes in the skull. But a lot of the time... Features that help us to identify a fragmentary fossil might be very specific structures on a leg bone or in the hip bones or of this particular weird ridge on this inside of this one bone in the skull because those are things that 
come around at the origin of that group. Yes. Larissa asks, how does finding small fossils work? What is the smallest fossil ever found? Which one have you found that was the smallest? Cool questions. Yeah, tiny fossils. Um, so it depends on what you mean by small. So how do how does finding small fossils work? Um, oftentimes, fossil sites will sift their sediment to find small fossils on the order of, like, mouse teeth yeah. and and frog toes and things like that running the sediment through us a mesh screen but if you want to find really small fossils actually small (laughs) you're looking you do a similar process where you are either sifting or dissolving away sediment to leave behind things like pollen grains or algal cysts or Mm -hmm. things that are actually microscopic you need magnification to even perceive them As far as the smallest fossils ever found, well, there are fossils that appear to be bacterial. Yeah, we do have things that seem like they are microbes. But then, depending on what you want to count as fossil, there there have been studies of just fossil DNA. Yep. Or biomolecules, which are just molecules, which are, of course, extraordinarily small. And finding those is going to be different from finding even larger things like pollen grains. Yeah. Oftentimes when you're studying really, really small fossils like that, you're specifically looking for those. Yes. Like when you're sifting fossils at a, at a fossil site to find snake vertebrae and mouse teeth and stuff, you're generally looking for whatever falls out. Yeah, you're not going to accidentally stumble across pollen. But if, yeah, if you're, if you want to find bacterial fossils, you go... We should see some here, and we are going to use these specific methods for etching away the rock or for scanning the fossil to identify those tiny, tiny fossils. Yeah. As far as which have have we found that's the smallest? Oh, I mean, I've done a lot of picking at the Gray Fossil Site. I was going to say, while picking, I found some pretty teeny tiny little teeth and uh, seeds the smallest fossil, or the coolest tiny fossil that comes to my mind, besides snakes, of course, at Gray, is, I think this was last year, I remember one of our sorting crew or picking crew found this tiny, tiny little structure that had kind of a two thin lengths of bone connected at either end with a hole in the middle that was super, super small that eventually one of our paleontologists identified as a fossil stapes, <laughs> one of the inner ear bones. Which is pretty awesome. Which was really cool. Not the smallest fossil ever found at Gray, since we have pollen and stuff, mm-hmm. and not the smallest fossil that I've ever found, because I didn't find it, but I was there, and I exp- I joined in the excitement of finding the first fossil stapes that has been identified at Gray. And the first one I've ever seen. Yeah, which is awesome. Which was really cool. Uh, incidentally, uh, for those of you wondering, Josh, our professor who identified it, said that he, we said, what animal is it? And he said, I don't know, because there's not a lot of comparative studies of stapes out there. Nah. But he said that it looked to him like it, it is about the same size as, say, a human stapes. So we'd be looking at maybe a mammal that is roughly human-sized. Okay. Which pr- means that the most likely guess is the same as the most likely guess. Always is it gray? Probably Taper. Yeah. <laughs> Taper is pretty, pretty good candidate. 
Cool questions. Uh, our next question came from two different people. Michael and Anna both asked, do you guys have a P.O. box for fan mail or have you thought of opening one? Good question. Uh, no, we do not. But yes, we have thought about it. Yes. Partially because of when we first went through this list and saw this question. Yep. <laughs> uh, so actually, I am looking into that kind of as we speak of getting a official address so we're not having to use our home address Yeah. for things to be sent to the podcast if they are ever needed to. Yeah, in the past, we've had fan mail. We usually, we'll have it sent to a proxy address. Yeah, the museum. Like the museum, for the example. aquarium when I was in Florida. But this year, we've run into the issue that the museum, it, we're not reliably at the museum Mm-mm. to get things. So yeah, we've been looking into opening a P.O. box. So, so we might do that. That would be very likely to happen in the near future. So look forward to it. Next, we have a couple of questions grouped together. Cody. One from Cody who asks, which podcasts do each of you listen to? And another by Finley who asks, what's your favorite non-paleo podcast? Oh, fun questions. Well, of course, you should all go listen to all the podcasts that we have guest starred on. Yep. Naturally. Those are all fantastic. Science, sort of. The the Science of Pokemon podcast that our friend Lucas does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were on Cruise Geeks. Yep, I was. At one point, which I don't... Is that a science podcast? No, it's a cruise review Okay. podcast uh but they got a question about sharks that's right that's why you were on there. and so they wanted me to talk a little bit about sharks ask a scientist podcast which we were on uh very recently so there's there's a bunch of those that of course we want to plug yep as for others that we listen to science and non-science uh well we mentioned i used to listen to astronomy cast a bunch yes i've talked about discovering darwin on this podcast before and we've had dr sarah bray on uh squamates is a fun science podcast, and Gabriel Lugeto, who was on our Paleo Art episode, episode 64, uh, is from that podcast. So there's a bunch of those. Mm-hmm. I always like to mention this podcast will kill you. Yep, yep, yep. The yep. Aaron's talking about epidemiology, uh, which is a lot of fun. And then as far as non-science podcasts, I actually have my podcast list brought up here. Nice, yeah. What, I, ha- what have I been listening to? I do not listen to a ton of podcasts, so David's list is much longer than mine in this regard. I, I haven't listened to Critical Role much recently, mm-hmm. um, but I was for quite some time. I got a couple of Pokemon podcasts that I've been sampling recently. Uh, one of them is the comicbook.com one. Oh, yep, yep. I, I a, use... a Wild Podcast Has Appeared, which I've been enjoying. Uh, actually, the podcast I've been listening to most often recently is Office Ladies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is a podcast, an episode-by-episode watch-through of The Office, hosted by Jenna Fisher and An- Angela Kinsey, who played Pam and Angela on The Office. So they talk about their re- memories and experiences of filming the show and, and what they remember from each uh, episode and things like that, which has actually been really cool. Which I've been enjoying because then I get the fun bits of trivia yeah. as you listen. Uh, Origin Stories is on here. I always like to plug Origin Stories uh, the, by the Leaky Foundation. That's science. That's human evolution and culture. I used to listen to Critical Role as well as Acquisitions Incorporated C-Team, oh, another yeah. D&D podcast. Yep. Welcome to Night Vale is on my list here. Welcome to Night Vale. I listened through most of that and then I, I've fallen behind. Though currently we both... Uh, one that we, we've both been very into is Magnus Archives. Yeah. And as far as favorite non-paleo podcast, that one. Yeah, that'd probably be one of my top favorites nowadays. That's definitely top of my list. Uh, also, uh, A Touch of Grey, 
Yes. Our friend Sean and Brian have that podcast about the Great Fossil Site. I don't think they've been doing it recently with, with the pandemic and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should definitely plug that because, you we know. We were also on it. We were on it. <laughs> Our next couple of questions, also a pair. Rob asks, did you both actively and consciously choose to specialize in crocs and snakes? Or did you always have an interest in these groups and over time become experts in them? And Crew asks, similarly, how did you guys find your loves for what you study and what you know? How would someone like me, who's going through college, find my niche? Oh, very good question. Well, for the the first section of it, as we mentioned uh, uh, a little bit earlier, for me personally, I've always been fascinated by crocs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those have been my favorite animal for a very long time. Sitting on my shelf right now is a little stuffed alligator that I've had since before I was double digits. Uh, so yeah, I, I knew that that was in my future. That's why I came to the gray fossil site. Cause they have fossil gators and it's why I worked at the Florida aquarium. Cause they had alligators. Yeah. Those are my caveats for the places <laughs> I was going to. Uh, like I said before, I was into paleontology as a kid and then developed over time. I always liked reptiles. I like dinosaurs and other reptiles snakes so getting into snakes was kind of a combo Mm -hmm. i liked reptiles and then i got into snakes because that was what was available the first time i said hey i want to do a research project and russ graham my my paleo advisor as an undergrad i I said hey all these other paleo kids are doing cool projects i want to do a cool project and he said we got all these salamander and snake bones that no one's been working on you want to do those so I did, and I started learning a lot, and I liked the snakes better than the salamanders, because mm-hmm. I like reptiles better, and I've always enjoyed snakes. And so it was kind of a combo. It, it was a, I did actively go, all right, now I'm the snake guy. Yes. But it was also an easy a- acquisition. Yeah, there was already a background a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as uh, studying, when I went to, when I got here to ETSU, uh, I basically said, I will study whatever there is to study with the gators. Mm -hmm. And my advisor, Blaine Schubert, said, well, this is an idea that has been floating around to work on. And so I did that. And I worked on the the modern alligator skulls. And as far as how how would someone find their niche as you go through college? That's a that's that's a good and profound question. I think so what I did. Uh, I can speak from my experience. Like we always say, I talked to tons of professors. Mm-hmm. I went, I looked at the professors and what they did on their the directory and went, that person studies cool stuff. And then I went to their office one day and I walked in and said, hi, I want to study cool stuff. Can you tell me a bit more about what studying this topic is? And what I found, uh, which I have come to realize is a truth about the world is that when you walk into a professor's office and say, hey, tell me some things about the topic you've dedicated your entire life to studying, you will hear about it. They they are usually willing to acquiesce. They will tell you. The other thing I did is I took a thousand electives. Yeah. I loaded up uh, my, my schedule with elective. Anytime there was like, uh, you have to take a biology class here or a biology or or a science class i'd go all right down the list what am i going to take entomology awesome mm-hmm. i took a class called symbiosis cool and some of them stick and some of them are less interesting when you get into it uh it so 
get experiences. And that that was going to be my main point is just pay attention to your own passions, like expose yourself to neat experiences and cool classes and interesting topics. Watch documentaries. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't have to be taking lots of college courses. Look up interesting documentaries, try them out, watch them, and then just pay attention to what things get you more excited and then pursue that. Uh, don't get discouraged just because it seems like something that, you know, might not be the easiest topic. Someone out there is studying it. Yeah. There's no reason you can't be another person studying it. Like, And also don't forget that you can always do more stuff later. Yes. I know some, uh, I've known tons of people who got 10 years into their career and went, I want to start dabbling in this other related topic a little bit now. And oftentimes that's a possibility. Yeah. So it, it, there's always that fear of, well, if I don't do this topic, what if that was my passion? Mm-hmm. You're going to do great in whichever thing you choose. You got to pick something, pick the thing you like, and then make the most of that thing. Yes. Make it your niche as much as choosing your niche is carving your niche. And then you can do what what you will with it later on. Yeah. And best of luck. Our next question is from Milu, who asks, what influences does studying and practicing paleontology have on you existentially as a person? Like, say, on your worldview, your philosophy, etc. Oh, cool question. Yeah. Um, I think that... For, I, I think... I love this question. I think about this all the time. Mm-hmm. What a person's expertise, how that impacts the way they see the world. For me, I think that it, it, it makes me see the world in a much more historical perspective. Yes, like I'd agree with that. deep historical. Because it means that I, I look at the world and I see it as the current chapter in an extremely long story. And I always, I, the, the way that I think about it is, it, like, I'll, I'll look around at things, and everything around us has some sort of deep history. Every rock is from a specific formation, from a specific time, from a specific environment. Every organism that I see is the end member so far of this lineage of evolutionary history going... Millions of years. Way, way, way back. I think that one of the most exciting things about understanding evolutionary history is that it really connects all living things in a way that sounds a bit hippie-esque. You know, we're all the children of the Mother Earth. But in a very real way, like, me and Will share an ancestry going back, you know, some number of thousands of years. Me and my cat share an ancestry going back some tens of millions of years. Me and my snake share an ancestry going back some hundreds of millions of years. And that's really cool. It makes, it has that one cog in a giant machine kind of feeling, but in a way, not in the tiny and insignificant way, but in the being part of the same long story as everything else, which is really sort of existentially satisfying to me. Absolutely. I'd agree with that. It also means that you end up with a little bit of the uh, dragon's problem. Yeah. The, 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 the classic fantasy scenario of a dragon or creature that lives such a long life that it cares not for the rapid affairs. Yeah, brief. The brief affairs of... Fleeting. Of, yeah, that, that sometimes it's, it's, a, it's both a, 
comfort and disconnect to be like, I mean, this is a problem today, but it's been around for 4 billion years. Well, that's that's probably where <laughs> I notice it most commonly day to day. Because I'd agree with everything you said uh, about viewing the connectivity and the story behind everything. But on a day to day, I am constantly reminded that what I think of as a long time and what most people think of as a long time are very different. Yeah. Uh, and I think of it in, in like fiction and all the time when it's like, you know, th- this this person's immortal. How long have they been around? 2,000 years. It's like, <laughs> all right, I mean, that's hardly a test to say they're immoral. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like. There's a bunch of trees that have been around longer than yeah, you. Yeah, that's not, that's not long. <laughs> or if something's like, you know, this thing is everlasting. But then it's like, all right, but what do you mean by everlasting? Because right. I'm I'm thinking of billions of years, if that's the case. And so there's lots of moments like that. And it definitely affects things where I would run into it at the aquarium all the time, which is a very conservationist-minded organization with mm-hmm. many people who are very conservationist-minded. And I am conservationist-minded, but to me, extinction is also a normal fact of life. Mm-hmm. Most of the things I talk about day to day are extinct. Most of life is extinct. Extinction is natural and has been natural since life has been around. So there would be many a time where I'd be talking with people and they were like, well, yeah, but we can't let it go extinct. I'd be like, oh, I mean, we can and we can't. Like, why can't we? You know, what? you need to have more of a reason than just it's bad for it to go extinct. And it would make my perception on topics like that what does it mean to preserve a species and all that sort of stuff yeah so yeah it, it definitely affects and in the deep time i feel like is one of the biggest parts of it yeah it's to have that perspective not just and for me not just on deep time but on diversity yes absolutely i think that it it gives you a re it, it gives me a very different understanding of what unique means mm-hmm. amidst the diversity of the planet. We've often said that uh, we are in agreement that every species on Earth could have a documentary about it and mm-hmm. deserves one. Yes, is as complicated as any other, and there's as much to talk about with any given organism. And I think that, for me, evolution is, uh, uh, in terms of my worldview on life, the great equalizer. Yes. Every living species has a story just as long and detailed as every other living species. And we're all part of the same web. And it's a cool... I I like stories. Yes. And I've often described studying paleontology is like watching a movie that shows you the end. Yes. And then you you follow the story of how we, we got to that point, right? Or it's like reading a book and knowing what the ending is and then watching as things develop to the familiar point that you know about. Yeah. And I love it. I it's It's a really cool perspective to have yes i'd agree good question here's another pair of questions jackson asks if there was an episode or topic you would like to revisit or redo what would be each of your choices and lowelli asks if you had to pick one of the first 25 episodes to redo which one would you pick interesting um there's not like one particularly that i can think of that i'm disappointed in yeah uh but there are definitely some that I feel like I could do better on. Yeah. I, I owe it. My immediately my immediate thought is the Crocs and Snakes episodes. That's the one I was going to say is 
Crocs is probably the one I feel that way the most about because it was the earliest yeah. topic and it was uh, 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 they those two were the earliest ones we each headed. Yeah, we were less polished. Less polished. We weren't used to it. We didn't have the practice of outlining an episode. We were less confident. Yeah. Well, and then in terms of revisiting, uh, there are definitely topics that would be super cool to revisit. Yes. And especially the early ones. So more on Crocs or more on snakes certainly yeah. uh, would be cool. Uh, some of our topics are things that are heavily researched. Mm-hmm. So there could be updates to be provided. Like I don't know how much has been learned about the KPG extinction in the last four years, but there could be a bunch that we could add on to those older topics. Lots of taxa I feel that way about. And we have with many where it's like, you know, we, we are certainly going to do, you know, we, we've done more dinosaurs since doing dinosaurs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like that, those are the ones I always think of as, you know, now that we've done whales, someone ask for dolphins or orcas or something right. like specific, more specific topics yeah. within that umbrella. Yeah. Stuff like that. So that we can zoom in a bit more by revisiting it. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Lara asks, what is your favorite plant fossil? Why? Hmm. Good question. I don't know all of the plant fossils. But in the first one that comes to my mind, sometimes it feels like this is the T-Rex answer mm-hmm. of plant fossils, but Lepidodendron's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. The scale tree. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. I think it might be one of my favorites because I can identify it. Yeah. It's one of the few plant fossils <laughs> that when I see it, I I know what that is. That's Lepidodendron. I think mine's probably, is definitely for much more personal reasons, is the plant stuff from Grey mm-hmm. that I got to pick so nothing specific, but that plant material was yeah. very cool and exciting to be like, oh, look, a seed. Like, I just picked up a five million year old seed. That's cool. Yeah. I, that was a very cool experience. So, I, yeah, that's probably mine. Cool. Good stuff. Lydia asks, if you could get on the con circuit, like Comic-Con, Dragon Con, etc., full time, but you could only be on a single panel as a team, what would it be? If you could also be on a panel individually, what panel would that be? Cool. It's just one panel yes. uh, forever on cons. As a team and as individuals. As a team, I think my vote would be Paleo Power Hour. Yeah. that's We've been doing that at Dragon Con, and it's just this, what we're doing right now on the Q&A, with a live audience. A room full of nerds. For an hour. Ask us Paleo <laughs> questions. For an hour. For, for, well, yeah, for, <laughs> for an hour or maybe two and a half hours. Uh, us, Trevor Valley, Karen, mm-hmm. uh, uh, has been with us this year. We also had Riley Black yep. uh, as part of the virtual version of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. As a team, that's, that's fantastic. Yes. Well, I like that one because it's, it's easily made versatile by all we'd have to do to make it not feel old is to prompt the audience. Yeah. With, does anyone have any questions about this topic? And then they come flooding in. And then they come flooding in. Because people always have more questions and they will always ask things we never even thought of. Yeah. And that's perfect. Yep. Individually, I mean, I I, uh, tried this year, but Mm -hmm. it it got weird. And will continue to try in the future to establish my series of Pokemon-related paleontology panels. Yep. Uh, Speculative evolution for me. Yeah. I've gotten to do that panel... A couple times, and oh, it's so much fun for the same reasons. 
shout yeah. out a monster and we'll we'll figure out how it could anatomically work and it makes me happy. Thankfully, we get to be on lots of panels. Brian asks, how many more years of spooky before there are enough entries for that illustrated natural history monster manual to show up on Kickstarter? Oh, I love this question. Oh yeah. Um <laughs> I, how many how many more years do we need? Yeah, right. And that's that's that has definitely been one of the main thoughts. Is right now we have a dozen. We have a dozen creatures. Dozen creatures, and and some of them are cheating, like our sea serpents, which yes. are technically more than one uh, type of creature. Yes. So we've got a bit of a menagerie. We've got we got a dozen solid entries, and we have definitely talked about thinking about what we could do to explore this concept further and mm-hmm. these creatures further in the future. A spooky... Listen, ever since someone on the internet called it the Spookyverse, we've been thinking about, oh yeah, a spooky monster manual would be real cool. It is, I'll put it this way. I don't know when, I don't know exactly what form, but it's on my bucket list, and I mean that literally. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's getting made into a book. It's gonna happen. These kinds of exploring a fake natural world books written from, like, an explorer's point of view were a, such a huge part of my childhood that if I could make one with something we created here on the podcast, like, if I could be part of that, I will die happy the next day if I have to. We look forward to to more writings about spooky, more art about spooky. One way or another, we're definitely going to do stuff like that. Yes. Maybe we'll do a, we'll start our own D&D podcast <laughs> and it'll be in our spooky verse. <gasps> oh, I like that. Oh, oh man. You That's. S- you said it and now it has to happen. I said it and now it has to happen and I know who's going to DM it. <laughs> uh, boy, I'm giving myself work. Our next question comes from Legus. She asks, As a non-scientist, I'm mostly interested in science communication. Do you have an audience in mind? In science communication, you often have to leave stuff out or make it more flashy. Is that sometimes difficult? And what is your favorite form of science communication? Excellent question. Like, this is a, a very important core question that needs to be addressed when you're doing science communication. Yes, uh, is who's your audience and what are you including? Yes. What is your content goal? Yeah, exactly. Who Who's your audience? How are you going to try to connect with them? And what are you trying to get across? And this is a conversation we had before we ever started the podcast. Absolutely. For us here on the podcast, at the beginning, we were aiming for young to, you know, younger people to younger adults. You know, yeah, high like, school to college age. Right. Adult, near adult and up. Yes, and we're not aiming, we were aiming for science interested, but not science affiliated. Like scientists. Yeah. Right. We have scientists who listen and that's awesome. Well, and that was what I was going to say next is something that has happened since that decision was made is we've learned that our audience is not always what we expected it to be. Mm-hmm. We do have a number of younger individuals. Like Hannah, who's five. Yeah. We have a number of scientists. We have lots of teachers, which is something we had yeah. not expected or prepared for. We have not significantly shifted our approach to it because we still want to aim for it to be accessible to that broad category. Right. Uh, and as far as when you're communicating science, how to get people interested with the do you include flashy things mm-hmm. is something that you have to be aware of and is something that I would go over with my tour guides when I was training at the aquarium. I would address that of like, 
Fun facts are a great tool, but if you only use fun facts, it's no longer about the facts. It's only about the fun, the fun <laughs> aspect of them. It's not, you're not actually teaching things. It's not important how big a blue whale is. Why is it that big? Mm-hmm. What, what does it mean for what it does it mean? Big? What what does an animal that big you know mean to the environment? You know, it doesn't matter that a stingray has a stinger. Why does it have a stinger? Right. You know, so there is an aspect that you have to be careful about overshadowing the science with the fun. And I, in my experience, the easiest way to bring some excitement to it without watering it down or over sensationalizing the quote unquote cool parts mm-hmm. over the boring parts is to bring your personal excitement enthusiasm, which means educate about the things you're interested in. Find the part you think is cool and educate that. And it means that sometimes you have to kind of find the cool. Yeah. It happens with us on the podcast a lot where someone will do this topic and then we have to go, okay, I've never really thought about this topic before. Well, we just released the PETM episode. Yes. And I didn't really know anything about the PETM. I had to read through it and go, okay, what excites me about this topic? Mm-hmm. Because then, no matter what I'm talking about on the podcast, I can express why I think it's interesting and what is exciting about it and what's relevant about it. And that, th- th- so much is to be said for tone of voice. Yes. In science communication. Yeah. People, it, it's this is a fairly universal and natural aspect of human interaction is that people can recognize genuine passion. Mm-hmm. And is very it is very often infectious. And I get we get commented all the time. That something that has surprised me, not just with the podcast, but also as a tour guide at the museum, is how often people come up and go, Wow, you clearly love what you're talking about. Yeah. You clearly have a passion for it. And I didn't realize early on how important that is for an audience. Yes. To hear that you're excited about the thing you're talking about. Well, and, and if you think about it for a moment, we all know what the opposite of it is, is that, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome you all here. Yeah. Please follow me this way. We're going to see some interesting stuff, to, you know. Or the other opposite of that, which is, yeah, this, so these, these animals that we're talking about today are, uh, have been here at the aquarium for about 10 years. And, and it's either way, you know, either you're faking it or you're not trying. Yes. It really does make... A difference. Even if you are f- kind of having to fake it in the moment, if it still has an undercurrent of genuine passion, it'll make it easier yes. to fake it. So, well, yeah, follow the things that interest you and express your interest. Uh, yeah. Don't be embarrassed to say why you think it's the coolest thing ever. And people will will often join in with you in finding it interesting. One thing that I, I learned in outside of the podcast museum realm, but in writing, in journalism or in writing scripts for, for videos and stuff, is using... So one, one of the things that would happen when I had editors is every now and then in my early news writings, I would find that the thing that I thought was exciting wasn't what the editor wanted or what the audience would think is exciting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is important to be able to distinguish between... The part of this news story that I think is cool is their phylogeny that they did showing, uh, uh, revising the taxonomy and et cetera, et cetera. 
And sometimes that's cool, but the other two things that are cool are what's going to be most engaging for the audience. Yeah. If I don't have a good way of explaining why that's big or relevant, sometimes it can be difficult to pick the right words for what you're getting across. I try to be very mindful of the the words I'm using so that I'm not giving off the wrong impression while trying to be excited. One thing we've talked about before is that a lot of the time in science communication, one of the easy ways to elicit excitement is to use words of fear yeah. or, or danger. Uh, and they, you see this on documentaries all the time where it's like, now we're going to talk about sharks. Cue the horror movie soundtrack. Yep. It's like, yes, you're eliciting engagement and, and, and emotion, but is that the emotion you actually want? When are you engaging with the animal or the danger? Right. So it, so, so yes, it can be tricky sometimes yeah. to find that right balance. And then as far as favorite style of communication, I mean, as long as we're communicating with people, I like the podcast. I like one-on-one. Yeah. Giving tours at the museum. There is something very exciting about being with people. Yeah. Like at Dragon Con with the panels. I'd say a tour is probably where I am most comfortable and typically feel like I'm doing the best job. Yeah. Yeah. Cool question. Our next one was asked by a few people. Peter, Shawnee, Ash, Mark, and William all asked if you both could bring back one extinct dinosaur slash extinct animal to adopt as a pet, what would you pick and why? Hmm. I mean, my gut is to say, if I want an extinct pet, to have like a little dromaeosaur. Yeah, be pretty cool. A little micro-raptor or velociraptor kind of animal. But then the pragmatic part of my brain goes, that's going to be a lot of work. Just get like a cool extinct snake. Right. Like uh, Nahash or Dinalesia, mm-hmm. one of the ones with legs, something real cool. Yeah. Put it in a terrarium, have it on hand, feed it every now and then, something nice and low maintenance. Yeah. I feel like a Dromaeosaur is going to be a lot of work. Well, I feel like you're probably dealing with a mixture of keeping a bird inside and a cat. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that does feel like it could be a handful. Yeah. Uh, though it also might mean that they're like having a cat or bird smart enough for you to work with. That's true. And, and teach it stuff and get it to be in the house properly. That's true. I'll try them all. I'll try them both out. Right. <laughs> Simosuchus is, has always been my go-to for this question. This is the armored, fairly small, like Labrador sized terrestrial croc cousin that has a flat pug face and flat teeth for eating plants. And so it would be like having a, a pet armored pig or goat or something like yeah but a croc and oh every every uh reconstruction i've ever seen of them is the cutest thing almost baby yoda cute so yeah that's always been my go-to good choice otherwise a a cool extinct turtle oh yeah that'd be fun i'd take a turtle yeah you know something with spikes or weirdness (laughs) our next question is from serpentine another hypothetical who asks if you had access to Andalite morphing technology, this is Animorphs, uh, everybody, for you kids and also for you older people, what would be your morphs for battle, stealth, flying, water, general utility, and just for funsies? Keep in mind, you'll have to touch the animal to morph into it, but if you like, you can have Elemist's time travel shenanigans. 
Yes. Oh, I used to think about this constantly. <laughs> What's your lineup of, of animal morphs to have? So battle first. What's good battle animal? Um, I Listen, I think that half of these, the answer is crocodile. Right? I mean, crocodile is pretty good. Like, That's, I'm good in the water. You're good in the water. You're good at battle. You're good at stealth. It's pretty stealthy. That, and also just for funsies. Right? I Yeah, for I, funsies, I'd be a, I'd be a croc <laughs> all the time, every time. Croc's a great choice. Snake is good for stealth, too. Sna- that's what I was thinking for stealth. Uh, for stealth, I would definitely like to be a snake. Something venomous, because yeah. that's what you want. Yep. Get, be a spitting cobra and be able to just Ooh. get people in the eyes. Fight from afar. For flight, I'm torn between going with something big and powerful, you know, like a like a harpy eagle, mm-hmm. or going with something fast, like a falcon. Yeah. Giant as dark and pterosaur. Actually, now that I think of it, I'd want to be a goshawk. Uh, I just now remembered. I I had thought of this one. Goshawks. Those are the ones that are made for flying through trees that they live in forested. Oh yeah. And so they are really good. Like they've done tests with them of flying through holes. Oh yeah, I've seen these. And they can mid-flight completely close their wings, pass through an opening, and then continue flying again. Yeah. And that's oh, I want to be that. I want to fly around. Indoors and not be impeded by walls and stuff. Ooh, nice. Don't less than two hours. Will. Yep. Yep. Um, also, water and stealth, both. Octopus. Octopus. Yes. Ooh. Also good for general utility. Ooh. And so far, at least on mine, but, but I'd be pretty easy to get my hands on. Goshawks are handled oh, yeah, by that's people. True. I've touched. Find a, find a croc. I've touched crocs already. Yeah. Uh, so I've got that one. Snakes, easy. Yep, I've touched a number of snakes. I haven't touched spinning cobra, but you know. I, I, I know people. I'll find yeah. one. Uh, Cephalopods. I've already octopus, touched one of those. I've tu- uh, have I touched an octopus? I've eaten octopus. Yep, I don't know if that counts. Yeah, that might count. I think they have to be alive. I think I they have to be alive. I don't remember. I would be able to turn into Scylla. That's the, oh, that would be our <laughs> octopus from the aquarium that I touched. That'd as far cool. as just for funsies, I know for Will, uh, orangutan's going to be somewhere in there. <gasps> Get your hand feet. Oh, oh I know. I'm going to be in there more than two hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Forever. That's, that's, this I'm, is it. This is my, that's your perfect self. <laughs> I learned sign language. It'll be great. I'll have an interpreter do the podcast for me. I, we could sit here all day. This would be. And come up with lots of great examples. This makes me want to reread the Animorphs. Yeah. You know, here's a funny story that'll make some people very unhappy. I read as a kid. Every single, like the main series, the side ones when they mm-hmm. did uh, uh, Dinomorphs and all that, uh, up until the last two books, which I didn't read and then never finished. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Never. I, I don't know why. I, I stopped one day and never went back to it. Never read the last two books out of like 60. Yeah. I read like a handful. Like yeah, the ones I had. Because I was, I've never been a big chapter book reader. And I read a few I read the one where Rachel gets sick because she touches a crocodile because it had a crocodile <laughs> on the cover. Yep. And that's why I read it. And I read a few others. I never got to read any of the time travel ones, but I had all the toys. They had a whole bunch of transforming action figures that would be some of the characters that turned oh, into yeah. some of the animals. And I had a bunch of those and they cool. were awesome. Our next question is from Nemo, who asks, how is the equality in the scientific paleontology community. How are gays, transgender people, and women treated, and are they heard? Very good question. Very important question. Um, and the the very first thing that we need to say is the caveat that we are none of those categories. Yes, we, we do not speak for them. Absolutely not. <laughs> in any regard. That said, um, I, I mean, the, the, the 
first and foremost answer is that equality in the paleontology community is not where it should be. No. As is the case for most most science (laughs) fields, most professional fields. There is absolutely still, uh, unfortunately, discrimination in uh, opportunities, in availability for involvement. Uh, I've known tons, tons of people with stories of experiencing discrimination within the scientific community, within paleontology. That said, uh, in recent years, there has been, it seems to me, a lot more discussion in being inclusive in paleontology in combating these uh, issues. There, I've seen a lot of branches of, of universities and of paleontological societies and other science societies forming into committees on diversity mm-hmm. or committees on discrimination, forming communities that are specifically meant to to foster inclusivity for women, for LGBT, for any sort of uh, diversity demographic that might be struggling. Yeah. So this is a topic that is seems to be gaining more awareness and gaining more traction. It is it seems to be becoming more acceptable to be concerned about this yes. than it has in the past. Paleontology, like a lot of scientists, sciences is historically a very white, very man-dominated Usually field. upper class. <laughs> Usually upper class. So, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail because I honestly don't No, neither of us are detail. experts on this either. But there is diversity of people within paleontology, and it, it is a growing and hopefully improving situation. There's active effort to make it even more welcoming, even more inclusive. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is definitely not as bad as it could be. And, and as compared, it has been. And as it has been yeah. compared to other fields. So so is it equal? No. No. But hopefully getting there. Yeah. and I can, On the right track. I can say at least within our echo chamber... Mm-hmm. Of of the paleontologists we are close with and friends with, it is a key priority to yeah. make it welcoming and to make sure that th- those bad stories become less and less. And if you're interested in learning more about this or just seeing the experience uh, going into these topics, uh, on social media, there are tons of paleontologists who are women. Uh, I, I follow a handful of paleontologists who are trans, mm-hmm. plenty of uh, gay paleontologists or lesbian paleontologists, etc. Um, paleontologists uh, of various backgrounds, various ethnicities. There's a lot of diverse paleontologists on social media. So you can seek them out and find them. And there are even like, on Twitter, there are lists people have put together of like, women in paleontology yeah. and so on. Our next question comes from Larissa, who asks... How can students support you in the best way? Student budget is kind of tight. Aw, yeah, no, we understand. We were students, too, at one point, and yep. <laughs> boy, they sure are. I mean, you sent us questions on our Q&A, which is a way of contributing to the podcast. That really is kind of the biggest thing I can say is just participating, listening. Yeah. Tell your friends tell, about us. Tell other people. Leave us a review on iTunes, because it... Put helps the ratings and helps iTunes share the podcast. Yeah, all of those things are great and supportive. Uh, we never want it to feel like if you're not giving us money, you're not really supporting us because 
most of our listeners aren't giving us money, and we are thankful for all of you. Yes. Send us topic requests. Uh, you know, if you uh, – we get lots of emails and, and people follow us on social media. Yeah. All of that is attention for us. It contributes to the podcast. And, yeah, if you're – even though it's kind of like being a statistic. Yeah. If you are yet another person following us on Twitter, well, that means that our Twitter visibility is just that much higher. Yeah. And uh, on a more personal note, interactions like this one, like the question you submitted, is very encouraging to us. Yeah. Every time we get a question or a just conversation, you know, comment or a topic request, that's encouraging to us. And the topic requests are what let us maintain to make every episode a requested episode. So, so if you can't actually give us money, that's okay. That is 100% fine. If you can someday down the line, go for it. That is also 100% that fine. Yep, also <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> Next, we have a question from David who says, going back to episode 46 on cryptozoology, he beat you to it. Cryptozoology. Are there any cryptids that seem likely to actually exist? The Orang Pendek of Sumatra comes to mind. Oh, fun question. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite, maybe actually real cryptids? If you go and look up a list of cryptids, like to the Wikipedia page and just like the list of cryptids, there actually are a number in there that are like the lesser something something woodpecker in Wyoming. Right. You know, which Think, is... Things that are thought to be recently extinct. Recently extinct or a, a morph, a color morph of like, yep. hey, we've seen blue woodpeckers. It's like, there's no blue woodpeckers. I've seen blue woodpeckers. Mm-hmm. And there's things like that that are mundane animals you know other versions or recently extinct versions of animals we know exist Mm -hmm. that are part of our ecosystem i'm sure a bunch of those i mean because there's a bunch of those that are now known the okapi is the classic go-to that every cryptozoologist website will have plastered all over it somewhere because that is their go-to support for people reported the okapi no one believed them no one could find it, and then finally we did. Yep. That technically made it a cryptid because it was a hidden animal only known by word of mouth. Right. So those kinds of things count as cryptids. Mm-hmm. Basically everything else that people typically mean when they say cryptid, Bigfoot, Mothman, Nessie, the Jersey Devil, mm-hmm. Chupacabra, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, no. Well, and it's uh, likely to ex- like to be a thing? Sure, you probably saw a thing. Yes, but is it Bigfoot? And on some of those, could there be a large aquatic animal with a long neck? Well, yes, we know those existed. Is there one in Loch Ness? No. So, yeah, so, for the so most part of the, the famous cryptids, there's not a single one that I find feasible. Mm-hmm. I think there people very likely did have a sighting of something and then were influenced by popular media and other stories to say it was Bigfoot. Right. I don't think any of the popular ones are reasonable yeah our next question is from michael who says what suggestions do you have for a young adult interested in working in science communication e.g college courses first jobs attitude etc oh very good very practical question oh yeah look look into those science classes take lots of science courses uh and follow the ones that most interest you you know it doesn't matter what Mm -hmm. kind of science it is that you're wanting to communicate just pursue it And another big part of science communication is speaking skills and 
people skills. Yeah, or writing skills writing or skills. however you're going to be communicating. Yeah, you need to be good at the form of communication. So if you're wanting to write science articles, take some writing courses. Yeah. You know, even if it's practicing writing prose, you know, even if it's story writing, whatever it is that you're able to get practice okay. in. And even if you can't take a course on it, you know, start a blog. Yeah, practice get it yourself. Practice in doing that. Uh, volunteer at a museum and see if you can be a tour guide or something. Getting that experience is really something, you know, it, it's funny because we both consider ourselves fairly uh, skilled and fairly accomplished as science communicators. They've been known to say so. But I look back at the stuff I was doing like eight, ten years ago and I'm like, Ugh, yeah. what did, that guy didn't know what he was doing. Yep. And it was fine. But really, the the earlier you can start getting some of that practical experience, uh, and uh, like we were talking about before, science communication is driven in large part by passion. Yes. So find things you're passionate about. Absolutely. If you hate writing, don't write as a science no, communicator you or learn to love it. Yeah. You know, and focus on the things that you really enjoy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason that I don't communicate vehicular science yes. or like medical science because that's i could mm -hmm. i could i've written stuff about you know things that aren't my forte but you find the thing that really gets you excited because that gets you going that's gonna fuel your communication efforts and as far as like jobs to look into you can like if you're becoming a, a public educator you know or a person-to-person -person educator you can definitely start building those skills before you're trained as a tour guide or trained as an educator I did not take any classes in education. Same. And I was not professionally trained as a science educator until I worked at the aquarium. Because I didn't get training when I went to the fossil light the first time. I, mm -hmm. I followed tours and then I gave tours. But like official professional training, I finally happened just a couple of years ago. But I built my skills up working in jobs that are people related. Uh, public service jobs. I worked in an arcade, which was had a big part of that. I Even when I worked at uh, Toys R Us for a little bit, helping people find things. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked there just before Christmas, so it was lots of grandparents and aunts and uncles coming in and going, they're five, it's a boy, he likes <laughs> dinosaur, he likes cars, uh, something in that, with that fits, and helping them find the right thing, built up some of those skills. So just... Finding things, and if you're wanting to do writing, find writing jobs. Regardless of what it's writing about, that will help you build the skills and learn writing techniques. Like, And as we often say, uh, find people who do the stuff you like and tell them what you want to do and see what if they have a direction they can point you in yeah. for more opportunities. And best of luck. And good luck. Susan asks, what books would you recommend for the current state of science about dinosaurs and evolution in general? Hmm, good question. You know, it's funny, I don't keep up very much with a lot of those books, ironically enough. Mm -mm. I know there have been a, a, a couple of recent big deal dinosaur books. I know Darren Nash and Paul Barrett, I believe, came out with their dinosaurs, what is it, How They Lived and Evolved, I think, which is one of the latest big dinosaur books. Cool. Uh, Stephen Bursati had his dinosaur book, what, I think it was The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs which is another recent very popular book on dinosaur history. Uh, I know that I think Don Prothero came out with a book about fossils and evolution. 
I think a new edition of it not too long ago. Uh, so those, I've read the Brusati book. I read Steve Brusati's book and I liked it. Mm-hmm. I, it was a fun dive into to dinosaur paleontology and some of the recent changes in our understanding. Yeah. So those are some suggestions. You could also find others pretty easily by going to like Wikipedia and looking down on the sources. That's and true. They link, they reference books all the time. And so see what's referenced commonly on either the group that you're wanting to learn about or the dinosaur Wikipedia page yeah, and see what their more recent sources are and then go to those. Oftentimes there will, every now and then there'll be an article written about top books about yep. dinosaurs or top books about evolution. So a Google search might also help you yeah, uh, be- uh, even more than we can. Yeah. Cause it, most of the keeping up that we tend to do is finding articles and right. the papers news and, and the papers and stuff. as it comes out and not actually reading the book. Our next question comes from M, who is a zoology student who desperately wants to get into paleontology. Do it. Yeah. I was wondering if there has been any evidence of decomposition by insects in the fossil record. I imagine it would be unlikely given that soft tissue generally doesn't preserve, but perhaps some insects may leave traces on the bone? Cool question. And yes. Yeah. There have been traces. Absolutely. Uh, You're right that we don't get like flesh-eating beetle traces type stuff. Right. Because they'd be eating the stuff that was not going to fossilize anyway. But we do have evidence of fossil whale falls and similar other deposits with like bone worms Mm -hmm. that eat and dissolve the bone of a fallen carcass, which is decomposition. There was a study not too long ago of insect decomposition on bones at the La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah. Of insect feeding traces on bone thought to be during scavenging and decomposition of the the skeletal remains. So we absolutely do get it in bone. We also get it in wood. Yes. We get lots of boring traces as fallen logs are slowly... It's a much slower process as a fallen log could be there for years. Mm -hmm. But that process of things boring holes in it and building tunnels and slowly eating the log is a process of decomposition for forest compost yeah so we don't often get the insects themselves no but rather often get traces of their their handiwork yes so absolutely we do their mandy work <laughs> mandibles the, the yep, work yep yep nope good I, question yep. good luck getting into good question bad pun <laughs> that's what we're here for <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the tagline of 2021 that's what would be on our van good questions bad jokes that's what would be on our van as we <laughs> if we were driving around Our next question is from Katie, who asks if you could have been there, in quotes, for any paleontological discovery slash breakthrough in history, what discovery would you pick? Hmm. What discovery would it be fun to be there for? Yeah. Um, every now and then you'll see those uh, pictures of people after they've discovered like a really big sauropod. Yeah. It'd be really cool to be present for the realization of, oh, I've been digging up this this femur, and that person sitting seven feet away from me is digging up the other end of this femur. Yeah. And the scale of something like that. As far as big discoveries, it's hard to say because often the big discovery comes later. Yes. In the lab and the research process. Up. Which could still count, you know, being there in the lab when they this is realize true. it. 
Like, it doesn't have to be when they first find it. When that realization mm-hmm. falls. I think a fun one, which, you know, feels less necessary since there's a detailed book written about it, but the discovery of Tiktaalik. Yeah. That's a pretty cool story and... Especially after being there for, I think it was like five years. Yeah. And finally finding the thing you wanted. Yep. After someone almost gets lost in the Arctic. <laughs> and Like, that would be a pretty cool moment to be able to experience. Uh, uh, though you'd have to be there for five years for it to mean as much. For it to really, really sink in. <laughs> yeah, like... Well, I think of the the dramatic reconstruction moment in the Titanoboa documentary of yes. the crew at the Florida Museum looking at the Titanoboa vertebrae and realizing what it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, holy cow, that's a big snake vertebra. Yeah. That'd be a cool... I want to be there next to Alex Hastings. Yep. In the darkened collection room as he opened the cabinet in their dramatic uh, reenactment yes, <laughs> of yep. the discovery. I don't know any stories. I've never heard anything about when we f- the first time we found a 40-foot croc. Oh, yeah. And they're never treated like... You know, they, I don't hear those stories because there's not one of them. There's a number of them. Right. And they're, they're like... Dinosuchus is fairly well-known, you know, material-wise. Like, not super well-known, but... Found in multiple places. Yeah. But being there the first time someone realizes how big yeah. this Crockett, that'd be pretty cool. I yeah. think it would be cool to be there in the 1950s with the team that discovered that Piltdown Man was a hoax. Oh, that would be... I want popcorn for that one. <laughs> <laughs> how about that? What kind of teeth are they? <laughs> what kind of teeth? Have you have you tried that new dating technique? Uh, how's that going? Shuyi asks, a question about the KPG extinction. You guys mentioned that the asteroid impact didn't wipe out all the species right away. It was the collapse of the ecosystem that caused mass extinction. So is there, or is it possible to find, any fossils of dinosaurs or marine reptiles above the KPG boundary, which was after the end of the Cretaceous? Very good question, and that is something that is like had to be checked out and has yeah. to be investigated. And every now and then there's claims of, mm-hmm. hey, we found a tooth that might be a dinosaur tooth, possibly lingering a little bit into the the Paleocene. So potentially, yes. Like, it absolutely could happen where a lineage hung on for a bit longer in some part of the world past when most other dinosaurs and most other Mesozoic life forms had died out Mm -hmm. that we see that happen where we have this like like the coelacanth where there's this one group that's hung on even though all the other coelacanths have disappeared right but as far as dinosaurs besides birds Mm -hmm. and marine reptiles to my knowledge there has not been a definite identification of one of those extinct at the boundary groups showing up significantly you know, you know, past that yes. boundary. And I think it's also worth saying that the boundary is not just the blip of the impact. Yes. That boundary is a, enough time. And that is thousands and thousands of years at least. That in that time, plenty survived past the impact and then died out during that time. Right. So that, that boundary layer, and it, keeping in mind, of course, that in many places there isn't a... Impact layer. Yeah, it's just we. It's Cretaceous down here, and then it's something else up above. But where you have that impact layer preserved, that is the years and years and years of raining down 
material depositing back on the ground. Yes. And in places where it's uncertain where the Cretaceous rocks sort of end, oftentimes the animals are used to define the boundary of the Cretaceous. So you wouldn't get them past the Cretaceous because yes. that's how we've identified that this is Cretaceous rock. So if we someday get a technique to super accurately date those rocks and find out we've been misplacing the boundary. Right. Maybe it's a little bit yes. less. So, yeah. But so far, not yet. Hasn't seemed to happen. And really, your point is we do have that in like birds and stuff. Like, yes. We do have it. It's just we don't notice them because crocs and lots of early mammals made it through that. And then lots of members of those groups went extinct later on. Mm-hmm. And that's just a normal part of how we retell the time scale. Right. Like there's, multi-tuberculates made it through and then went extinct later. Yeah, there's lots of things that made it through past it that are Mesozoic groups that survived and then just didn't make it till today. Right. Like those Matsoyed snakes that disappeared like 10,000 years ago, finally. Yes. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> yeah. Next question is by Finn. Who simply asks, Permian or Triassic? Which is the coolest? Triassic. Triassic. Absolutely Triassic. Yeah. Triassic. Archosaurs, early crocs, early pterosaurs, early dinosaurs, all the weird reptiles, uh, Charovipteryx and Drapanosaurs and Phytosaurs and all that cool stuff. Probably the earliest lizards, the earliest turtles, true mammals, ichthyosaurs start showing up there. Listen, the Permian's got some cool stuff. Oh, yeah. No, Permian, you're super cool. You're but, super notable. You did a great job. But you're talking to a couple of reptile enthusiasts. Yep. Triassic was awesome. Triassic, so cool. Nick asks, I have a question inspired by Dinotopia. <gasps> other fantasy stories involving humans living with dinosaurs. What would be the conditions necessary for human slash mammal diversity to evolve with non-avian dinosaurs still alive? Would it even have been possible? Would mammals or di- and dinosaurs need to be separated? That's a fantastic question. And yeah. in the books, they present it as the last, your last question there, that the dinosaurs were separated right. on a- the continent, the hidden continent of Dinotopia. The lost world scenario. Yep, that they were able to maintain there and that even though there is a human civilization that has developed alongside dinosaurs, it was after humans evolved and ancient settlers, you know, canoed to Dinotopia and then built civilization among the dinosaurs and in conjunction with them. Yeah. But yeah, in that scenario, we did not evolve alongside the dinosaurs. We evolved together and then reconnected. We developed our society alongside them. And so... So if the non-avian dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct... If we hadn't had the impact and they were still able to progress past the Mesozoic... I mean, it's probably a safe bet that mammal diversity would be nowhere near what it is today. I Yeah, I don't see... A, Just because there wouldn't have been the opportunity ecologically. Yeah. Like well, you it, can't grow up to be another big herbivore if all of the resources are already being utilized by big herbivores. And, you know... It's not likely that we're going to see the evolution of any recognizable forms of mammals because dinosaurs would then just keep evolving throughout all the ages that Earth's about to go through. So it's not like, well, we, you know, would we eventually catch up? Well, no, because the dinosaurs are going to continue changing. Right. They would not look the same as they did in the Cretaceous by this time. By this time, we'd have completely unrecognizable dinosaurs, completely different group, and... 
they would have been adapting to their environments very well like they had been the whole time. I suppose that it's possible. One could argue that there could still have feasibly been a niche for arboreal mammals. Yeah. So you could have gotten something like primates. And then in theory, you could have still gotten something like humans. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's completely out of the question that you couldn't get anything similar to modern mammals if yes, dinosaurs were that is were impossible. Because it's not like we're the only ones on the planet in the Cenozoic. There are still big crocs. Yeah. There are still big birds. Yeah. But I think a, a big part of it is also, would humans evolve even if mammals started doing really well? Like, even mm -hmm. if mammals started doing quite, quite well, we've changed the scenario. Would evolution lead to people at all? Right. You know, it's it's Would likely now. pressures be there for it? Maybe mammal diversity does fine, but it just doesn't evolve humans. Right. And the scenario that led to us was changed enough by leaving Mesozoic fauna around yeah. that mammals may still start to where we now have a dino mammal world. Right. Where there are equal competitors on the planet, but there's just no people. Uh, so I, I don't think that it would be impossible. Yes. It would look different. Mm -hmm. And of course, it is impossible to say what would happen. But I don't see why it couldn't ever happen. But I could definitely say that mammal diversity would not be what mammal diversity is today. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder if we would have seen a, if there would have been a different event sometime during the Cenozoic that would have served to be the moment. Well, I mean, the PETM was 10 million years later. Yeah. What would that have done? Would that have been a moment for mammals to, for dinosaurs? Yeah. Like, at the end of the Oligocene, glaciation starts setting in, on, uh, in uh, we move into an ice house yeah. world. That's kind of what I was, I was thinking is a lot of the thoughts as to why dinosaurs suffered so badly and other groups didn't is that dinosaurs were very specialized by that time and weren't able to adapt as quickly to a sudden change. What other sudden changes might have been enough to knock them down mm -hmm. so that mammals could take over a bit? So right. by would the time by we today, got to the Pleistocene, yeah. yeah, would dinosaurs really be struggling? Would now we be basically at what the beginning of the Mesozoic or the Cenozoic kind of looked like oh, true. right now where mammals are now just starting to take over? And so would we end up just delaying it by 65 million years? Yeah. And now if you fast forward farther into the earth, now people are back and it's... Right. Or what would have happened to mammals in that extra 20, 30, 40 yeah. million years? Yeah. So yeah. All would, sorts would we be all multi-tuberculate based Ooh. if they hadn't it, Marsupials would yes. rule the world. Yeah. <laughs> Our next question is from Laura. Who says, some animals, such as turtles, can navigate based on magnetic fields. Are there dinosaurs where we think they did the same? Ooh, good question. Well, there are birds. Birds do that. That navigate that way. Yeah. I don't know of any evidence of extinct dinosaurs navigating with magnetic fields the way birds and turtles do today. Yeah. But I would not at all be surprised if we discovered evidence of dinosaurs navigating with magnetic fields because it is fairly common yeah today well it's it for anything that's migrating over extreme distances oceans and whatnot mm -hmm. it, it's a very useful tool and you know, sharks do it yeah you know, hammerheads are known to use the magnetic field of the earth to migrate so i wouldn't be surprised if other flying and swimming mesozoic animals mm -hmm. had it 
And yeah, it, it just with how diverse and weird dinosaurs were, it would make sense. But I don't know how we would detect it. Like, yeah. I don't know what evidence we'd look for. No, I'm sure somebody knows. Listen, if it's there to be found. That's someday. Maybe I mean, we'll find it. That's, for that previous question, what upcoming there we technology? Go. The technology to detect that. There we go. That that's would the be big mystery. Awesome. What big mystery actually. question do we want to know the answer to? Laura's mystery question. That actually would be a very cool question to know. Our next question is from Nathan, who says, I just saw a gif of a seagull swallowing a small rabbit hole. Cool. Is there any evidence in the jaw structure of non-avian dinosaurs that tells if they were able to gulp meals larger than their heads like this? Interesting. Yeah. I, I've i not heard of research specific to that. There has been research looking at the gape of different theropod dinosaurs. Yeah. So I've seen it with Allosaurus and Tyrannosaurus of how wide could they open their mouths. I ha- I don't know what the structure is in the bird jaw that lets them... Do that? Yeah, I mean, birds have, like, a flexible mouth in that it can widen sideways at the back. Yeah. Like, it's weird. And they also have, uh, uh, oftentimes their throats are elastic. Are very stretchy to allow things to come in. So whether or not dinosaurs were all like that is very hard to say. Mm-hmm. It's a very good bet that a lot of carnivorous dinosaurs were eating giant chunks of food whole. Yeah. Because that's how birds do it and that's how crocs do it. Yeah. And we know some dinosaurs, like I said, some of the theropods, did have very wide gapes to their jaw. But it is a fair question because could it be that this is a beak feature right. is this and a not a thing? theropod feature? Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. They, they were probably swallowing big chunks of stuff. To answer your question, T-Rex could definitely swallow a small rabbit hole. Yes, yes. No, that is... Good the, question. Uh, get to the core of it. Next question is from Emerson. How did large dinosaurs, like sauropods, impact the geography and landscape of their environment, and is there evidence for this impact in the fossil record? Good question. Cool question. We talked about this a little bit at the end of episode 101 on sauropods. Yes, we did. Um, so, I don't know that there's a lot of direct evidence for the impact of large dinosaurs on their ecosystems, but we can infer by looking at the impact of large animals today on ecosystems like elephants mm-hmm. uh, or recent, uh, recently extinct things like mammoths and such. And the answer is that they probably had extensive impact. I mean, our herd of sauropods would cleave a huge path through a forest. Yes. Not just devouring all the leaves off of trees. But literally. Literally just pushing trees out of the way as they move through. A herd of sauropods would trample the ground. Uh, which could leave little footprint ponds mm-hmm. for little frogs and stuff. It could turn what was a fairly solid place into a much more muddier yep. as they slowly just trot across it. Yep. Uh, they'd also be uh, major uh, actors in the dispersal of nutrients. Yep. So eat half a forest here, Digest walk tens of miles, and then poop out a bunch of fertilizer which contributes both nutrients, uh, you're, you're feeding the soil, but also seeds and stuff. Yep. So they, dinosaurs would have been hugely important in transporting seeds and probably pollen uh, and and spreading nutrients around their environments. Yeah, there's definitely places where they could be opening trails mm-hmm. for other animals. Uh, it makes me think of this one area in Africa where a, a plane, a big floodplain floods i don't know that it is 
regularly yearly because it's, you know, Africa, but floods very often and these grasslands just become oh, yeah, yeah. flooded and fish can start invading them, but they often follow the paths made by hippos as they plow these trails, these little river systems through the grass. Yeah. And now fish can easily follow, follow in and feed on the grass and feed off of other stuff. So I could see a sauropod plowing through underbrush and making it easy for other medium-sized dinosaurs that yeah. can't slink through it. Now that, now I can walk easily through the forest because there's a two-lane highway. Another thing that I think, especially something like sauropods uh, would do, is that a sauropod carcass yep. would just be its own little ecosystem like for a whale a while. fall. Kind of like a whale fall, but on land. With that would just feed tons of scavengers and insects and decomposers. It would probably be events like I, the smell of that carcass could be bringing big predators from miles away. Yeah. So an area where it's like, oh yeah, we never see Tyrannosaurus, you know, or Giganotosaurus here. You know, that doesn't come to this valley very often. And then a sauropod dies, and now there's three Giganotosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> so all sorts of of different impacts that they could have. Absolutely. Cool question. Richard asks, how do you know what the creatures you study ate and where and how? Cool. There's a few ways we can determine diets for animals. The first and foremost is shape of the teeth mm -hmm. and shape of the, the jaw and the mouth. What what do these tools seem to be shaped for? Are they cutting? Are they slicing? Are they grinding? Are they grabbing? That can give us a lot of information. The type of jaw, was it a strong bite? Was it a fast bite? Was it a bite that could chew? You know, could they could they move their jaw back and forward and grind? Could they move their jaw in some other way? You know, what seemed to be the mechanical pressures? There are chemical analyses we can do. Studying the chemicals on the isotopes on the teeth can indicate what food was being ground into them and what isotopes the animal was eating and incorporating into its body. You can look for patterns of damage on the teeth by the food they're eating. So mm -hmm. you can tell soft food versus rough food. And then, of course, you can look at the other end Yep, and look for evidence in poop. Coprolites, we can examine what's inside it and get an idea of what kind of diets. And Now, we can't always match that to an individual animal, mm -hmm. uh, but we can ID it and usually get it close yeah. to matching so we can potentially have a good idea. You can also, when every now and then you get lucky and find gut contents. Yep food fossilized inside the body of that animal. Which means at least one time that animal ate one of these. Yep. Uh, you, uh, the, the, the question also included where. Where. Which is an interesting question because you can also do that. Yes. You can look at the chemistry of an animal's teeth especially to link those chemical isotopes to different environments. Yeah, browsing versus grazing, leafy versus grassy plants. But also to the geology of different environments yeah. to get a sense of not only what you were eating, but where. Where did you migrate from? Did you come down from this valley up here, down into this forest, and then back? So you can actually get a sense of how they were moving. Well, you can also based on those diets. You can also see environments sometimes with freshwater versus saltwater. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're eating fish, if we're pretty sure you're eating fish, were you eating catfish or you know, uh, uh, sea fish? So there's a number of ways, yeah, uh, all sorts of ways. And ideally, if you have multiple of those avenues available, 
we would take as many as possible for a single organism to support. It looks like a meat eater. It has the right chemicals to seem like it is a meat eater. If we found poop, sure does look like the poop of a meat eater. It's got bones mm. in it. And then it we found bite marks yeah, that's on what I was gonna herbivore say. bones that match these teeth. You can also find traces on the food, yep. like we were talking about insect feeding damage on bones and, and on plants. So there's all sorts of ways. Yeah. So we can usually get a pretty good idea, but not always. There's some that have such a weird mouth, we don't immediately have a guess as to what you'd be doing with it. And then, you know, like a uh, helicoprian, the, the spiral tooth shark, spiral tooth shark cousin, uh, chimera cousin, which has a buzzsaw blade in its mouth. And we don't know what it was for sure doing with that. I, the most common one I hear is that it was slicing up soft things like squid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if it was, we wouldn't find feeding traces of that most likely. So every now and then we come to ones that do stump us to a bit just because they're so weird and they don't have the other things we'd be looking for to corroborate hypotheses our next question is from a fan from brunei who says we know you both enjoy extinct animals getting cool or nerdy names like beelzebufo or ninjimis however can you think of an example where a paleontological name or terminology sort of bugs you a little hmm yeah yes (laughs) yes i can one, there is this trend throughout the history of paleontology of sometimes naming taxa in reference to other taxa. Yes. So like Procomsignathus or Protoarchaeopteryx before Comsignathus, before Archaeopteryx, which are two examples that I'm pretty sure eventually turned out to not at all be related to yep. Comsignathus and Archaeopteryx. So now they're just confusing. Yep. Every now and then you'll get stuff like that where it's like, that. that's a little bit... A little bit frustrating. Yeah, that's that. That's a little annoying. I also find it less annoying than that. But whenever an animal is just named for being big, and like that's in the name, mm-hmm. sometimes that that can be weird. Especially if it down the line they are extremely outsized, right? <laughs> you know, by the next new species found or a later new species found. Uh, and it's not that it's they were still big at the time, and they still are bigger compared to some others. But I I feel like that, that I've had moments of confusion where someone's like, "Why is it named that? It means this." And go, "Is it the biggest one?" No. I think it, it, sometimes I worry a little bit about the tendency to lean really hard into the ter- etymology of names of extinct organisms. And I know it's fun and it's interesting to yeah. learn about. But I think a lot of the time it's done as, well, this is the way we do it. Here's what it means. But without the extra context, it, it is just confusing sometimes. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm not always a huge fan of here's its name. Here's what it means. And then let's move on. Unless sometimes it's, it's cool. Interesting or pertinent. But sometimes it's, it's just, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a hundred percent on it. There is also one other little note. I, want to make more as a personal note this is something that for me and i know for other people but i feel like when someone names a or group of people name a new fossil organism and give it a very complicated name oh yeah if i can't pronounce it on the first couple shots yeah that's what was the one can't can't think of it there was one that was my go-to example can't think of it so this is a good story yeah I, there, 
I, I'm not, it's not necessarily that that is a bad name and you may have had your reasons for giving it that name, but that is kind of anti-outreach in that you're not making that easy for anyone but people with your kind of experience to discuss that animal. Like The one, the one I was thinking of was uh, Razanandrongobi. Yeah. Which is a Jurassic croc. I, well, I always, it always makes me feel bad because I'll go to a conference, like mm -hmm. a scientific conference, and you'll watch someone give a talk and they'll be like, other animals found at this site, or we compared our new fossils to this other species. And the professional paleontologist will look at it and go, and it's that name, which I'm not going to try to say. Yeah. And then move on. And I feel bad because it's like, well, no one's going to say this cool name no, that, that you thought you've of. You've just affected how much people are going to discuss this animal. Yeah. Unless we give it a nickname like Barcroc and stuff, which Caprosuchus is a fine name. Like, right. I don't want, I'm not dunking on that one. But, like, that is not outreach-minded. Uh, when you make your name as complicated as possible, the general public are never going to say your animal's name unless they happen to be a hyper-interested little kid. Other scientists are often not going to say your name, mm -hmm. and so therefore have more difficulty discussing it. So it, it stop, stop. Just make it a name <laughs> we can that people can say and easily discuss. It doesn't have to have some deep meaning as to the location, the features, and the person that are all related to it. Just communication is key. Yeah. yeah. So the answer to your question is yes. Yeah, a little bit. Josh asks. You get to write the next Jurassic film. No restrictions. What's the plot? All the dinosaurs died when they got released. <laughs> I was... And they, we, we are just cleaning up carcasses of dinosaurs that are dying in people's yards because they're not eating the right food and they're not being taken care of. Now, Will, that's, that's pessimistic. <laughs> let, me, let me paint you a picture. Picture the start of Jurassic World. The, the, the park is up and running. Tons of exhibits. Tons of dinosaurs. We have successfully turned it into a zoo slash theme park. Yeah. Our movie follows a documentary crew mm -hmm. coming through, talking with the scientists and the park uh, uh, organizers about their scientific process, about what we've learned about the animals. We get some close-up shots of the animals. We get some of the park interpreters discussing, here's all the cool stuff we've learned about these animals, their diets, mm -hmm. their lifestyles, things like that, for two hours, then roll credits. Yeah. Uh, alternatively, I suggest, uh, I don't feel like this is a terrible spoilers, the, the, since they've revealed it with all the trailers, that the next entry would be the dinosaurs out in the world. Mm -hmm. I say we start the next movie with a title card that says, like, 50 or 100 or 200 years later, and then it's just a Dinotopia movie. Hey, there you go. Yep. yep. It's just people and dinosaurs, and then we're, like, we're, we're having Dinotopia adventures. That's what Jura the Jurassic franchise has just been leading to. That's If that's the case, I'll it's accept. A, it's a six or seven or eight movie long buildup. It's like the Planet of the Apes movies. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> the end goal is just Dinotopia. Yeah. I like these ideas. Yes. Uh, that guy who works for TV, uh, get in touch with us. <laughs> you let us know which one they prefer, and we'll start writing it. Next, we have Harrison, who asks, Do you know anything about how museums decide what color their fossil mounts should be? Presumably, they could make them any color they wanted to, right? Why do they choose the colors they do? Good question. Mm -hmm. So for the skeletal mounts... For the, the replicas. The, the replicas of the fossils on display. Um, I've never made... Skeletal mounts for mm -mm. exhibits. Oftentimes, 
the colors will be chosen to reflect the original fossils. Yeah, whatever it's replicating. Right. So we'll paint it to look something like the original fossil. That's usually what I've seen to be the case. Uh, so, so in, in some cases that means brown. In other mm-hmm. cases it might mean tan colored. Black. Sometimes they're black. Yep. Um, sometimes the fossil... Uh, the different parts will be colored differently to indicate which bones we have of the fossil and which bones are sort of we've filled in by by making a good guess as to what these bones would look it's like. like. If you've ever seen those drawings when they do a reconstruction and they'll color in black the bones and go, these are what we found and the rest is an outline. Yeah. They'll do that where the bones we have are natural colored and the rest are some less natural colored so that you can distinguish. Yeah. Uh, they're also chosen to be aesthetically interesting. Yeah. So if they were all stark white, it would be hard to see. It'd be hard to see. It'd be boring. It wouldn't distinguish them to be an old skeleton versus yeah. a new one. It would look weird. It'd look weird. Yeah. Good question. Because even a normal skeleton's not stark white. Yes. It would also look weird if they were just the base, like, 3D printed color. Yeah. <laughs> they're all neon green or blue or... <laughs> I have some uh, of the replicas, the 3D printed replicas from Grey that are fire engine red or don't run me over yellow yep sam asks do either of you personally own any fossils yeah some yeah i've got a trilobite that was a gift uh from someone i've got a box of fossil uh, of leaves and shells and stuff that i collected and on expeditions back in college yeah i got a lot of little beach stuff Uh, i also have a trilobite face that was given to me a mosasaur tooth yeah uh i'm very unique uh, compared to other people who collect fossils, I have a, Mos- a megalodon tooth. Oh, yeah. how yeah. interesting. Yeah. Right now, I am the proud owner of the entire Gray Fossil Site educational replica collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a few. We a don't. Few. Neither of us are active collectors. No, and we uh, also don't buy fossils. No. We don't really go out hunting for our own fossils. Yeah, because th- th- that is a, a touchy thing that... Purchasing fossils is a... Is a Odd. Yes. It can, yeah. But also, I, I've never been a big collector of fossils. Yeah, me neither. Like a personal collection kind of guy. I have more dinosaur and fossil animal figures Yeah. than I do fossils. And I have a lot of books. Yes. Yeah. VJ asks, why is it that no modern birds of prey have sickle claws like the dromaeosaurs did? Were the dromaeosaurs more specialized, in a sense, than modern raptors in taking down prey with these sickle claws? Good question. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the answer might be that the dromaeosaur particular style of sickle claw is just a feature of that group of animals. Indeed. That birds don't have the same, quite the same style of claws for the same reason they don't have fur, just because that's not something their lineage developed. Mm-hmm. Another part of the answer is that a lot of birds of prey actually kind of do. Your hawks and your eagles, many of them, the inner toe claw is notably larger than the talons on the other toes, on the mm-hmm. other digits. Now, it is not to the extreme of dromaeosaurs. Right. It's not that retractable sickle claw. Where it's the claw is longer than the toe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in some, it is fairly extreme to where the others are slightly curved talons, and this one is an almost crescent-shaped yeah. sickle. And most researchers think that they use those while holding on to the prey. Right. Uh, especially for things like, I think it's falcons that are famous for doing the killing bite mm-hmm. that 
pounce on a prey item and then bite it at the back of the head with a special little hook on their beak <laughs> for snapping spines. Uh, and that that talon is plays a key role in gripping and staying on the prey after they first hit it. Yeah. Uh, so it is not completely lost in predatory theropods. It's also important to note that the way that birds of prey use their feet is different from the way dromaeosaurs did. Yes. Most aren't running on them. Exactly. A dromaeosaur had that, this is your one claw, or I think the one example, your two claws mm-hmm. that are held up. That's your special slicing claw. All these others, are, need you need to run with them. Well, it, uh, Whereas a bird of prey is, well, you can have all talons because you're not walking. You, you can perch. grip a branch. Without messing up your nails. Exactly. So you don't need to have the one special keep-it-off-the-ground kind of claw yeah. for a bird of prey. Well, and it also makes me think of the cheetah, which uses its claws for traction, mm-hmm. minus the one thumb claw on the forepaws, which stays very sharp. Right. And is the one they use to hook. But the front four are fairly dull as far as cat claws go, because they're using it like cleats. Yeah. So yeah, dromaeosaurs just may have to settle for one overly specialized claw, because the others are used for... Chasing down the thing you're about to claw to death. Indeed. Our next question comes from a listener. Hey, we thank you every episode. (laughs) What would happen if the Indian subcontinent didn't collide with Eurasia? What would have been the impact on the rest of the world? Oh, we would have had basically another Australia-type place. Yeah, just hanging out out Isolated. We wouldn't have Himalayas. We wouldn't have Himalayas, which is huge. I can't. I can't even fathom how much that must that would affect that area of the world. It would affect the local climate and possibly the global climate. Yeah, like that's that's a it, big change to our topography. It has been suggested in the past that it has been pointed out that the rise of the Himalayas happens around the same time we start to see global temperatures going down. Mm-hmm. In part, possibly because weathering of rock absorbs carbon dioxide. Very good point. Chemically. Yeah, I forgot about that. So it has been proposed that having a new huge mass of exposed rock leads to tons more weathering, which is pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and thus lowering the greenhouse effect. Mm -hmm. So it could indeed have had very intense impacts, not to mention that animals and plants would not have interchanged. Like you said, it'd be like an Australia... Scenario isolated. And on that note, I don't know what that would have isolated. I don't know well enough what was introduced by the collision of India. Yeah, same. Uh, I don't know that there's been much research on that. Yeah, so that's that would be interesting to find out what what groups would have been isolated on India. I assume it would have been a bunch of Gondwanan groups that you know were common. Yeah, and could have been isolated, which means we may still have a bunch of other ancient southern continent things. Ah, true. Lineages isolated on this this pizza slice out in the ocean. Neat. Fun to think about. Uh, speaking of speculative stuff, our next question is from Gavi, who says, We hear a lot about the three best-known groups of archosaurs, dinosaurs, pterosaurs, crocodilians. Of those three, two have evolved flight. Crocs shouldn't have to feel so left out. Can you pretty please speculatively evolve a flying crocodilian? Well, if you insist. Okay. Uh, probably a lot like a pterosaur. I think it would be a lot like a pterosaur. Coming from... I'm, I'm picturing an origin as a small bipedal running croc like the early archosaurs. Yeah, exactly. It would have to be some terrestrial cousin and 
probably one of the smaller, you know, more agile, longed, longer-legged mm-hmm. getting moving. Yeah, I'd assume it would probably go a very similar route to pterosaurs. Uh, it would have that long face. It would have a, a long face that be, could be... Be a, be a fish eater. And could be made very easily into a beak type of thing. Or uh, mm-hmm. if it went like a gharial snout, there's lots of pterosaurs that have very yeah. long-toothed... You know, so it'd be very good at fish eating in that. Crocs already have the efficient breathing system that, that they share with birds. Absolutely. So they'd be ready for a high metabolic requirement. Uh, I wonder what kind of wings it would get. I Assuming uh, it would also have some sort of membranous wings. Yeah, like bats and pterosaurs. As I say, since of the vertebrates that have flown, two of the three have done that. Well, realistically, three of the three have done that. Yeah, it's very Because true. there are extinct... Uh, at least gliding dinosaurs with yep. membranous wings. Absolutely. Alternative uh, hypothesis. Ready. Crocs evolved, kept their skulls, and evolved extremely tiny bodies, <laughs> and fly like scallop swim, <laughs> snapping and chomping and propelling themselves through the air. <laughs> they, they, they bellow. <laughs> and like Godzilla <laughs> in whichever movie that was, yep. is <laughs> propel themselves through the air. I think they would have bat finger wings Ooh. because of the even potentially two-legged ones I've seen, they still were very four-limbed heavy. So they did they. It would make sense that they still had their and they got the five fingers. Yeah, maybe they climbed first. Yeah, like bats. Yeah, maybe. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> like bats. Maybe did. Like bats. Maybe did. There you go. Croc Garial, uh, a Garial bat. Is... Croc Garial scallop bat. <laughs> Our next question comes from Drew, who asks, "What are your favorite examples of symbiosis?" Neat. I know what Will's favorite example of symbiosis is. I mean, of them, Venom is still my favorite. Uh, <laughs> though hybrid and toxin are pretty cool. I don't know uh, much about Carnage, but I always thought that the idea of Carnage was Carnage cool. is pretty awesome. He used to be way too over the top for me, but now that I've read more comics, I be like him more. It'd be real cool if Venom was in a good movie one of these days. Yeah, no, that would be yeah. cool. Uh, the most recent one, Sleeper, is real cool. I like that one. Remember that question earlier that was like, what other nerdy stuff are you into? <laughs> so much of our audience is lost. Yeah, the symbiotes from Spider-Man <laughs> are m- probably, as a group... My favorite comic book characters. So when I think of symbiosis, oddly enough, the first thing that always comes to my mind is lichens. Lichens is a really good... What a cool... Because they don't exist outside of their symbiote. Like, there are algal and fungal species in lichens that are only known from lichens. Yeah. How cool is that? That's pretty awesome. Bioluminescent symbiotic organisms? Anytime bacteria live inside another thing and then do a overtly, like... Uh, the, the animal triggers them to do a thing yeah. is always like, wow, how are you doing that? Well, anytime an organism functions, like, cause sometimes there's symbionts that are like, wow, this, this bird sits on my back and eats the parasites off of me. Cool. But anytime there is a pair of symbionts or in the case of lichens, you know, what, three or four or whatever. Yeah. That effectively form a different functioning creature. Yeah. Like bioluminescent organisms need that bioluminescence that is now a different animal or coral yep which only functions at all by virtue of its symbiotic photosynthesizers yeah because when the algae leaves that's what you get coral bleaching yeah and then they're done so i love that that uh, there are symbioses that are basically fusions yeah fusion huh by our powers combined 
I also really like specific teamwork. Like, not just the, I'm picking stuff off of you, uh, but like, we are, we are both working toward the same goal. Like, octopus and, you know, groupers, or groupers and moray eels and octopus and other fish and like, where we are not the same species, we are just two individual animals that have come to the same conclusion of we're, we want to go kill things and we're both good at it in different ways. Yeah. I, that's, that one seems so unlikely to happen. Yeah. Like that two predators decide to work together to acquire the food that they both want. Mm-hmm. It's that you should be competing and yet sometimes they don't. We also talked in episode 102 about how parasitism is a form of symbiosis. Yep. So all of those. All of the, They're all <laughs> really, really awesome and disgusting, and I kind of love every single one of them. Yeah. Good question. Jade asks, or states first, penguins have surprisingly long necks. They do. Agree. Do you think that plesiosaurs could have evolved a blubber-like insulation similar to penguins and... Maybe their necks weren't as long in life as they seem to be in fossils. I've seen some paleo art like that. Where the head does not go to a skinny neck, but tapers out to the body. Yeah. With a big fleshy neck. Um, I don't, I think, I want to say that the evidence doesn't suggest that the neck was supporting a bunch of additional weight. No, because we have some soft tissue, like outlines mm-hmm. of plesiosaurs and it seems that they did at least those species did right. have fairly thin necks yeah um i don't it's not impossible it's not impossible uh some of those were pretty long necks to cover the whole thing and a lot of blubber a thick sheath of of blubber the other thing i think is worth noting is penguins have surprising long necks but they're also very mobile necks yes they're they're moving their head around a bunch they're stretching it out and jutting it and snapping with it right well plesiosaurs did not have pretty mobile necks and at rest a penguin's neck is kind of curved yep. like most birds whereas which is what allows it to look have that sort of fat mafia neck yep Whereas plesiosaurs had these long, sticking out straight necks. That could bend, but as far as the most recent research shows, not a lot. So, as much as I love my speculative paleo art about spherical sauropods and tube-shaped plesiosaurs, probably not. Doesn't seem that way. Sky asks, if you had to pick one, what would be your favorite mustelid? Otters. Yeah, otters was my first thought. Also, wolverine. Wolverine's pretty awesome. Uh, giant river otters, the Amazonian ones, would be my my go-to. Yeah. Secondarily aquatic things, always a winner. And I've worked with otters at the aquarium. I didn't work with them, but they were there and I loved them. So, Christoph asks, how did the relationship between North American sauropods and ornithopods work? Did ornithopods really outcompete sauropods almost completely? If so, why? Uh, hmm... I don't well. They, I don't think that the ornithopods complete, uh, completely almost outcompeted sauropods because they did live in North America at similar times. They definitely there were parts of the world though that were definitely more ornithopod dominated, like northern continents, and parts that were more sauropod dominated, like southern continents. Mm-hmm. But it's always very difficult to draw uh, uh, in the fossil record a relationship between. This group is the reason this other group isn't here anymore. Because there's a lot of other things than just a competitor that could drive a group out of an ecosystem. And I know we do have fossil sites. 
uh, at least in some places, with both ornithopods and sauropods. So at least in some places, they certainly uh, coexisted just fine. Yeah. Dawn asks, what are your Hogwarts houses? Last time I took the test, it was uh, Hufflepuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Originally, the first time I took it, I think the first couple times I took it, it was Gryffindor. Yeah, that's what I would expect. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I am Slytherin. Yeah. Not just for the reason you think, but also for that reason. Because of the way you are. Because of the way, because because I like to think that I'm the antagonist in my own story. Because of the everything about you. <laughs> Cheryl asks, any more scientific... Any more Scientist Spotlight miniseries in the future? It was fascinating to hear about their backgrounds and their work. Sure. We were always trying to think of ways to get other scientists involved. Yeah. As guests in side series. Uh, we haven't done Spotlight again, but live chat this past year kind of had a similar uh, theme and a similar aim to it. And those are always fun. So I think that, yes, we will continue to bring other scientists into to explore what they get to do. Absolutely. Blaine asks, in the recent Godzilla movies, the scientists say that Titans directly consume radiation to survive. When I heard this, my imagination went wild thinking about what animals that consumed radiation would be like in the real world. I'd love to hear your speculations about that kind of lifestyle. Neat. And we actually do have organisms that survive off of human-made radiation. We sure do. There are funguses that are growing off of the fallout in Chernobyl. Yeah. And also, if we want to get a little bit uh, semantic... A little cheeky. All plants feed on radiation. They feed on solar radiation. Yeah. Which means that this is a lot like our answer to that earlier question about animal photosynthesis, Mm -hmm. is there are animals that have worked in... A little bit of solar power or a little bit of photosynthesizing radiation-powered metabolism. So probably a radiation-powered animal would look a lot like a coral. Yes. Or something similar to that. Or you could have an animal like a Godzilla creature that is partially, that is supplementing its metabolism with radiation. Yep. If not entirely fueling itself that way. And so... You definitely could, but... They have coral on the back where the spikes are. Well, that's what, during, I think, the last DragonCon speculative panel we did, that was one of the things I threw out there, was that if a lizard got infected with some of these Chernobyl funguses Mm -hmm. and started growing fungal spore structures on its back, that also, though, gave it nutrients from the radiation they ate. Yeah. There you go. That's that's how you get a Godzilla. (laughs) LJ asks, what is the difference of where one could expect to find plant fossils and animal ones? Have you ever found plant fossils? What did you learn about them? Good question. Mm -hmm. Many fossil sites have both animal and plant fossils, but plant and animals remains do fossilize differently. And so you can get them differently preserved in different places. Yeah, disparately uh, represented. So like... Coal beds are great for plants because they are made of plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, animal fossils, to use a very obvious example, are extremely common. In fact, probably the most common place to find animal fossils is ocean sediments, where you're not going to get very many, if at all, plant material. Yep. So there are definitely areas where one is more likely than the other. It also depends on the environment. It also depends on what kind of plants you have. 
woody plants are going to preserve much better than soft plants. So the plants in a forest, you might get more plant remains than, say, a grassland Mm -hmm. until you look down at the microscopic pollen level. Yes. I found plant fossils. Same. So have you. I found found plant fossils in a number of, like, roadside deposits. Mm -hmm. Like I said, Mm -hmm. I have some leaf impressions that I've collected in the past, but also at Gray. Yeah. We've both done picking and sorted through the wood and seeds and stuff that we get from the gray fossil site sediments. And when I found those fossils, I personally did not learn much from them. Same. But we have lots of research has been done on yes. those fossils or those <laughs> kinds of fossils. So we've learned that. I learned what plant fossils look like. Yep. I learned how to identify gray site <laughs> plant fossils. Jeremy asks, are you part of any outreach programs? Not currently. No, the museum does outreach programs that we've both been part of in the past. This year, there have not been museum outreach programs. Earlier this year, when the pandemic started, I joined Skype a Scientist. Oh, yeah, same. And outreached with a few different groups and people. But since then, no, not not much recently. Yeah. Our biggest outreach project is this. Our next question is from a believer in Archosaur supremacy. Nice. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Who says... Who asks, have you ever thought about compiling a bunch of topics that are too small to make a whole episode and combine them into a single episode? Yeah, we did that once. Mm-hmm. We did that in our uh, our More Birds episode, 37.5, yep. where we took three bird requests and made them into a bigger episode. Uh, we could do that again in the future. Yeah, we used to use topics like that more for our But We Digress yeah, stuff. Yeah, small that, topics. Yeah. And we would do quick ones for that, which we could definitely do again. Or we could do a a grab bag episode where we have a couple of different topics that are either related or are, you know, just just interesting things that we don't quite have enough to fill a full episode on. So we could. We just have really only had the one opportunity that easily presented itself. So it is certainly possible. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, we are getting down to the last uh, minutes of our time on this episode, so we're going to ask a few more questions before we wrap it up. This one's from Mike. Mike asks, if you could choose a dream guest to interview on the podcast, who would it be? Ooh, fun. There's lots of people that would be tons of fun, and Mm -hmm. there's tons of paleontologists that I'm sure we will get to, but if I could choose a dream guest, like magically choose whoever, and then David Attenborough. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Because he's done tons of stuff about evolution and paleontology oh, yeah. well, and conservation and animals and st- like, yeah. My first thought when you were like, dream, anyone dream guest was Jane Goodall. Oh, yep. That she would seems be, awesome. Yep. I got, cool that I got to meet her. Oh, fun. Very I got briefly. To, I didn't meet David Attenborough, but I was in the same room as him once. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, she came to the college to talk and then I got went up and got a picture with her. So you have a connection. Yeah. Is what you're yep, saying. Yep. I cool. got an in. Well, it's interesting because our guests, we pick guests based on the topic a lot yep. of the time. When we when we come to a topic that either we don't feel like we would do a good job mm-hmm. representing or, or we know someone, we who, would know someone who would be much better. So when we do primates again, yeah. we'll get Jane on the, on the podcast. <laughs> Rebecca asks, is there a fossil record for carnivorous plants? Oh, good question. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are fossils of carnivorous plants. Uh, I know I've seen a couple reports of fossilized parts of pitcher plants, mm-hmm. and there was a report not too long ago, I think this was an amber specimen, of leaves with little sticky tendrils on them oh. for catching, uh, and they were related to certain living carnivorous plants for catching insects. 
That's cool. It's an interesting record because carnivorous plants are several lineages of plants. Yeah, it's not one group that became carnivorous. So yeah, there are scattered fossil remains of various different types of carnivorous plants. Which makes brings the question up of how many extinct groups are there that we just yes. have don't know about. <laughs> Here's a question from Dawn, who asks, At what point do you think conservationists would be going too far and overstepping natural selection when it comes to species like the giant panda who seem to have a hard time mating, or any other species that's losing population numbers, from forces outside of direct human interference? That's a very good question, and it's a conversation that does come up among conservationist circles and uh, groups. And that is a concern, that, as we said earlier in the Q&A, extinction happens naturally. Yeah. Things have been going extinct long before we developed hunting strategies to overhunt stuff. And so the question has to be asked, is an animal or group going extinct because we're messing up the ecosystem or killing it too often or polluting? Or was it already going extinct and then we showed up and started messing with it even more? Right. And it's tricky because the time rate is slow. Like things don't go extinct Super quickly, typically. So even if it was on its way out, it might have still stuck around for thousands of more years before it would have naturally gone extinct. And it's really hard to parse out how much of ours effect is, how much of the effects are us or the natural environment or happenstance. Mm -hmm. But there are some that people point to. Uh, The giant panda has been pointed to before, though. Although, (laughs) I was going to say, lots of people will comment that In the wild, it does not have the same behavior as it does in human care. Right. A lot of animals struggle to mate in captivity because we struggle to provide them with the proper conditions for mating. We don't understand it or it's difficult to simulate Mm -hmm. their natural settings. Uh, But another one that gets pointed out a lot is cheetahs, who went through a a population bottleneck before we were messing with them. Like, historically, their population dwindled extremely to, I think I've seen some suggest hundreds. Yeah. And then they have bounced back a bit. But there's a lot of people that have said, yeah, that may have been the beginning of the end anyway. Mm. Like, the cheetahs aren't doing well, even when we're not messing with African wildlife. And so there are some, but it's really hard to determine that. And it's also difficult because we have still damaged cheetah populations. Yes, and pandas and everything. Yeah. So do we just stop conserving them or do we bounce them back to where they were before we started messing with them and then leave them alone to their own means? Right. Or do we conserve them, then stop all the nonsense we're doing? Yeah. Then put them back out in the wild and go, okay, now you're on your own. Exactly. Like, where, where do we draw the line? Do we stop yeah. helping them all together? Do we help them until... They can be living like they would have. Can they ever do that again? Because now they live in a world of people. Like So, yes, it is a danger. And almost certainly there are examples where we are unnecessarily, quote unquote, conserving animals that are going extinct anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to determine that. So it's hard to make the argument that we should st- stop or actively allow a group to go extinct. And I think that that's a, one of those questions that doesn't probably doesn't have a right answer. Yeah, that's that's a very difficult, and it is one that will also continue to be 
a question well into the future. Well, and it, it also is a difficult question because the time scale, none of us will live long enough to experience the amount of time we'd need to truly determine if an animal was naturally going extinct. Right. There's also the question of, is it more important to preserve that species or is it more important to preserve the role that species plays in its ecosystem? Yeah. Yep. Is it okay for cheetahs to go extinct if something else is going to be on hand to effectively do the same thing? Exactly. And alas, that that's not our job to decide. Nope. Hey, let's do one more. I think this will be our last question for the Q&A and we will wrap it up with Zabby who asks... What are each of your favorite starter Pokemon from all the generations? They personally like Totodile the most. Good choice. Totodile's real good. Totodile's a good choice. What's your favorite starter, Will? Uh, it's the one that I have up on my shelf a whole bunch. I'd have to say Charmander. Yeah. That's, like, I like a lot of them, and they're really cool. Uh, like, Rowlet was way high up there, and mm-hmm. but I really like Charmander. Charmander is way up top for me because... Charizard's just so cool. Yep. Very cool Pokemon. However, if I have to pick just one, I'd probably go with Piplup because Empoleon is so cool. Yeah. It is the only steel type starter Pokemon, which means it's awesome. Yep. And it's one of the core members of my dream team of all steel type Pokemon, uh, which I call Steel Team 6. I was about to make sure you said it. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. No, those are good ones. Yeah, which totally. also means that I, I beat Will's favorite in a fight. Yeah, well... Which is very important. Uh, it's, it's Just surely. like my favorite uh, reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like if we're in the anime or something, mine will win because it's the main character. Plot yeah. Um, Totodile has always been a very high up on my list because it's a, 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 Cause it's a croc game. gator. Yeah. And for the same reasons, yep. Superior is way yes. high on my list because, yeah, it's a snake. But the design of the other two is just real good. Yeah. And well, that's going to wrap us up. Yeah, I think that's about it. It, it is almost tomorrow here. Yep. We made it through a good chunk. That was a lot. Thank you to everyone for sending in questions. Yes. Uh, like we said at the beginning, if we didn't get to yours, we are we, we, we apologize. Yes. We did read all the questions. We appreciated the thoughts that they prompt people's creativity, enthusiasm. It is, we, we've talked all throughout the year about how exciting it is to get the kind of feedback and get the kind of response from our audience. And when we, for this, this Q and a has been one of the best examples of that all year. Cause I think day one, we got like several dozen responses and it was mind blowing. Absolutely incredible. We will do another one of these next year. Every year. Cause it, this is so much fun and it's so encouraging and it's so cool and sweet. And thank you. And it's such an exciting way to wrap up a year. With yeah. just, let's just sit down and cause we don't have to do a whole lot of work for it. We sit, we're having fun. We're just hanging out with us and with you. And it really, even though it's four hours of talking, it's very laid back and it's very relaxing and it's really enjoyable. So thank you to everyone who sent in questions for the Q&A. Thank you to everybody who listens to the Q&A and who listens to the podcast. Thank you to all of our patrons, past, present, and future, who support the podcast. Thank you, sitting there listening right now. You know who you are. You know who you are. Thank you for, for being there to support us and to listen and to raise our download numbers and to leave likes and 
reviews on iTunes and to follow us on social media, there is an actual community out there of people who listen to our podcast. Which is pretty magical. It's pretty incredible. It's it's fantastic. So thank you once again. This has been tons of fun. I'm glad we set a cap. Yeah. Because, boy, I'm ready. I'm pooped. (laughs) Answered all I can answer. And with that, uh, we'll see everybody. This will be the last thing we release in the year 2020. We'll see everyone in 2021. With episode 104 through 130, right? Maybe. Who knows? That sounds right. That's probably right or something like that. Yeah. Something close. Plus extra stuff in between. Yeah, more spooky next year, more Probably silver screen more of those. A few more of those. Yeah, we'll have, maybe we'll have other voices on the podcast. Maybe we have other secret projects we're yeah. thinking about. Do some of that, that live or video stuff that some of you were mentioning, that newfangled way yeah. of getting on the internet. We'll launch the official Common Descent private jet. Yep. Uh, it's got Rob's art right on the side of it, yep, which yep, is yep. really cool. Uh, it well, it's like if you all remember Yu-Gi-Oh when Kaiba has the blue eyes jet, it's like that, but with croc and snake. Yeah, that's exactly worked into the jet's construction. Yeah, but the plane is a croc, and all the the torpedoes. <laughs> I guess that, I guess a plane doesn't have torpedoes. All the missiles that <laughs> it that it yeah the uh, the giant anime missiles that it shoots out those are snakes. Can <laughs> we get a PO box? We'll see. <laughs> oh, and also, yeah, we'll get a PO box. Also, PO box. Uh, if we can afford it after the jet. <laughs> yeah. Listen, that jet really... That set us back. Thank you, I, Patreon. Honestly, you wouldn't believe how much the art... Commissioning that scale of yeah, art was a jet, real... Jet, not that bad. No, the, the jet art. was okay. Oof. Yeah, it was Wolf. a lot. It was real. They'll get you. It's, all, it's always in the add-ons. <laughs> I said we didn't need the gold toilets in the bathroom on the jet. I said, why would we get a jet if we don't have them? And it was a, it was a whole thing. The podcast almost ended that yeah. day. With that discussion. Yeah. Uh, so you should all be thankful we got the jet so that we can keep making this podcast. That's right. That, we're going to fl- We're gonna go find Jane Goodall <laughs> in that jet. <laughs> we're going to say, hop on, we have a gold toilet. It's common since 11. <laughs> That's, yeah, we got to just collect all the Psycomers out there and pull some sort of grand Psycom heist. Yeah. We're starting. If we're starting with Jane Goodall and David Attenborough, we're gonna have to get some younger people to round it out. Probably true. <laughs> well, someone's got to fly the jet. <laughs> we don't have any money left for pilot. So if anybody out there knows how to fly a jet, yeah, if, uh, students that were saying you want to support us somehow, there you go, you pilots, you pilots, we'll fly around the world. <laughs> this is this has become this is the rambliest outro I think all the way to twenty twenty one. I think this is the rambliest outro of all time. Yep. Maybe we'll make a, a social media post that'll be like, if you start listening to the Q&A at this time, <laughs> yeah. we'll say Happy New Year at, yeah, at yeah. New Year. It's when the Death Star blows up. Yeah, exactly. We'll, <laughs> we'll do that. Happy New Year when the Death Star blows up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never done that, but I should. What do you say we say Happy New Year and then uh, see everybody next year? Sounds good. Cool. On On the count of three... Count of three. One, two, three. Happy Happy New New Year, Year. everybody. We'll see you next year. I almost said sink.
what's what's so funny to me about that is that that's how the episode that's how it ends and no one's gonna get that <laughs> only our guests only, only our, our guests, guests. <laughs> will get that <laughs> huh we should leave this part in yeah no i think so <laughs> maybe we'll see <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.